Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. And today, this is the post-read episode for The Sparrow. Um, we read the book, we have thoughts on it, and we're going to talk about it with you and we with each sure other. are. Sorry, I cut you off there. No, no, it's fine. It's the, you know... <laughs> Wait, what's the what's the, the the podcast genre millennials interrupting each other <laughs> i think we saw that again fit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah say that again so i can cut you off again um cool so i'm trying to record there yeah so we have a lot to talk about today with um with the sparrow i think it's um before we do anything else uh i think it's worth kind of mentioning that there was a lot of torture and sexual assault and rape and isolation and, you know, other things of this nature in this book. Uh, we're going to be talking about those in depth. We're going to mark this particular episode as explicit in iTunes because of it. And, you know, if any of that stuff doesn't sit well with you, then you might, you know, at least want to know that going into the conversation that we're about to have. Definitely. Uh, one piece of feedback that I have heard from other people that read this book, and it's true for me as well, is that me too. when I started, yeah, when I started this book, I had no idea that there was going to be uh, this kind of content. And I wish I had known. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so yeah. yeah. Be, be <laughs> um, so I think the the structure of this episode, we've been talking about it a little bit. Um, at the top, we're just going to talk about whether we liked it or not. Um, we're then, oh, and the other content piece here, there's going to be spoilers the whole way through. Um, that said, I would, you know, I, I honestly think that this is the kind of book that like the spoilers won't actually spoil it and that like it's fine. Like if you haven't read the book, I personally would recommend that like you can listen to this episode, no problem. I know Matt will probably disagree with that to a degree, but, you know, I've had several people say like, oh, to me, like, oh, I don't know if I'm actually going to get to this book. Should I listen to it or not? Some books will say no with this book, like, hey, I think you can listen to this episode and you'll get a lot out of it. How do you feel about that, Matt? I mean, that makes sense. I, I, we need to do a whole mini episode about our feelings about spoilers. Yeah. To, to go too in-depth into that would make no sense right now. <laughs> um, I, I, like, if it were me, I would, um, I would, yeah, si we should say that there are spoilers in this episode, and then, you know, you can either listen mm, to it or Decide from there. Yeah. Um, cool. So I think the structure of this episode is we're going to start up front talking about... Um, whether we liked the book or not, and just kind of get that out of the way and talk a little bit about why we liked and didn't like it. Um, and then we'll talk more about that later as well. Um, then we're going to go through kind of like book facts, like just talk about the plot, talk about the structure, talk about the characters. Book facts. <laughs> I saw Matt really wanting to, to jump in there with that. Um, <laughs> you can interrupt. It's OK. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, <laughs> Book facts. <laughs> it's it's better if you interrupt than make me pause. Otherwise, a weird dead space. I'm, I'm trying to catch you off guard. <laughs> I can see you, so it's not. I don't know if it's catching me off guard quite. Um, so yeah, so we'll talk about whether we liked it or not, the plot of the book itself, um, and then uh, we have a bunch of like themes and topics, and that's going to be the majority of the of the conversation is talking about the aliens, talking about the themes of the novel, talking about kind of like the twist at the end and whether or not it's even a twist. Um, and we wanted to talk about uh, one character in particular a little bit more in depth than all the others. 
Uh, so that'll that'll be it. That's more or less the structure. Um, there might be a surprise. There's always a surprise when it comes to Matt. Matt's a surprising <laughs> dude. Um, so Matt, uh, did we like it? I don't think so. I I I have complicated feelings about this book. On balance, I didn't really like it. Yeah, I I liked. It's one of these books where I liked it while I was reading about the first three quarters and then I was getting closer and closer to the end and realizing that some of the little problems for me were becoming bigger and bigger problems and I hated the way it ended and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this later but there was a um my edition has a an interview with Mary Doria Russell and reading the interview like really cemented for me the fact that I didn't like this novel um reading what she had to say about it in particular like I, I just disagree with some of it in a way that like you know may, makes it makes it, I think really interesting to talk about but not actually a book that I would like necessarily recommend to folks I think also just the amount of like uh, uh like difficult content makes it hard to recommend to a lot of people that's a big one for me. I mean, I, I didn't know going in. I wish I'd known. Even if I had known, uh, would it have changed how I feel about it? I don't know. Um, I don't know if it would have changed how I feel about it. It would have made it like easier to read. Probably, probably. And uh, I talked. Um, I talked to another friend of mine a few days ago, and um, and she. It's funny because I talked to, her and she really liked the book, but also had all the same issues with it that I had. So that, that, that was kind of interesting. And to, to talk there yeah. is that like, I think that a lot of the stuff <laughs> that we don't like, I think are just elements of the book and like some people will be able to forgive them more than others. Maybe we should talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I'll just say briefly, I, what I liked about the book. So my overall feelings about the book, um, I feel like it was a sincere, and sympathetic attempt to do something but it was it tried to go about doing that thing in a wrong-headed way and also failed to do it um and so you may disagree with you know if, if you disagree with me about this book you may disagree with any part of that you may feel like it's not sincere <laughs> <laughs> Which Adrian may or may not feel. No, I think uh, I, I would say rather that it was a sincere attempt to do something that I think is not worth doing, and a sincere attempt at doing something that I think is actually like wrong. Yeah, I, I uh, we'll definitely talk about that. Um, yeah, so you may disagree with any part of the thing. Not wrong, uh, morally said, wrong, but, but like wrong is in like incorrect, <laughs> like yeah, factually yeah, yeah. I, wrong. <laughs> I, I, I also think a lot of it's incorrect. We probably have different views about what we think the author was exactly trying to do. Right, and that's kind right. of a fuzzy thing to talk about in any in any circumstances. Right. Uh, and the more so here, because we've both read that interview with uh, Mary, Doria, Mary Doria Russell and, um, and uh, you know, we... You know, that kind of influences how we think about the book. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's, a, I, you know, I think oftentimes people kind of ask this question about like, oh, to what degree should you separate the author from the work of art? And I think like, you know, setting aside that question as like a whole abstract question with this book in particular, it's really hard to do because she explicitly wrote herself into the book and like admits that she did that. Like, it's not just like, you know, calling one of the characters a Mary Sue isn't a, an insult because it is explicitly. And she has said like, this is my author stand in character. Well, she didn't say that exactly, but she, I think she said something more along the lines of like, it's clearly based on me. Right. Which is a little different. 
and only only in the sense that like I don't know um I think we're clearly meant to feel like that character is based on her and we're clearly meant to feel like that character's opinions are hers but I don't know if we're meant to think that literally everything that character says is something she believes I I mean it may not be that strong Oh sure but, sure yeah anyway Cool. So, um, yeah, and just in terms of like what I liked, I mean, I did like that it was a book that, and I mentioned this in the pre-read, like takes religion seriously. I, I do think it's sincere. Like, I think the book is sincere, maybe almost like too sincere. Like, that might be honestly part of its problem. Um, but overall, I like liked the sincerity. I liked that it was trying to do something interesting with Rakot and the kind of the aliens that we see, even though I don't know how well it achieves that. Mostly it's just such a small element of the book overall that it's kind of disappointing. And um, I, I, you know, like I, I, there were a lot of things she was trying to do that I liked the idea that she was trying to achieve. And I don't know if I actually liked the execution um, I, I, is a lot of the way I feel about the novel. Yeah, that's a very good summary of how I feel about it, too. Um, I also liked the uh, attempt to create a vibrant living alien culture that mm -hmm. we are then going to investigate mm -hmm. through the eyes of characters that are living with them as anthropologist stand-ins. Right. That's a cool idea. And other authors have tried to do that in other books that are that are also interesting to me. But they, I just don't think she pulls it off. I think yeah. I think the aliens aren't don't make as much sense as she thinks they do. I think the characters don't make as much sense as she thinks they do. And um, there's a lot, a lot of my experience reading this book was feeling like I was meant to think a certain thing and that, and yet that the, the opposite text I was, was given, true. Right. The text I was given portrayed the opposite. Yeah. Thing, yeah. Or like just a totally different thing. Right. I think, um, I think particularly in terms of like, the thing, the first thing that jumped out at me where that was true and obviously true to me was that um, around the, the 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 first third or the end of the first third of the book, when all of our characters are kind of coming together, they're hanging out, they're having dinner parties and they're, they're interacting with each other a lot. Time and time again, a character would say something vaguely mundane and then i would be told that all the other characters laughed uproariously for five minutes and then like the next character would say something and they all laughed uproariously for five minutes and none of it was actually that funny to me like i like yeah. i never i never i never laughed while reading this book there was never a point reading this book where i thought that it was funny in any way yeah, to me, I I I, read, I sort of label a lot of the disconnects between my perceive my perception of the author's intention and my perception of the author's words. I label a lot of those disconnects preciousness. There's a mm -hmm. kind of and so to me, it it all falls under this broader rubric of there's a kind of like preciousness about how this is being portrayed. We're meant to like these characters, the main characters especially. Um, they're portrayed. They're we're meant to think that their relationships are. Um, likable and desirable to have. Um, but I didn't necessarily feel that way. We're meant to think that they're smart, but, and yet they do stuff that does not seem smart. That seems really dumb, like really dumb, like not, like not something that like an intelligent person would do. Right. Well, Especially not, not something a, person a, a with reasonable training. person would do. Yeah. Yeah. We're meant to think they're funny, like Adrian said, and I don't think a lot of the things that are portrayed as jokes are funny. And we're also the the worst part of of this preciousness problem that I think the book has is that I think we're meant to approve of this particular kind of 
mm-hmm. uh, like you know quote quote unquote saintly innocence that the characters have with respect to their mission we're meant to think that the fact that they are kind of almost willfully naive about certain things um because they are you know so caught up in their positive view of what they're undertaking we're meant to think that that's somehow good and desirable and and maybe even something of more some religiously more thing right but but in fact it's it seems like it's really dangerous and bad (laughs) (laughs) like there seems like you know we're meant to think that their attitude and the attitude of uh and that in general the attitude in life of this kind of innocence is is like this great thing um but it's specifically in the context of the book it's terrible like right. they're well, every naivete, single like bad outcome in the book and the book ends very poorly for everyone is because of this naivete and because exactly. of the, this like you know because of their hubris because of their unwillingness to like just discuss simple matters with each other because of this innocence over and over and right. over again in all the ways that it like appears like that's the causes everything and when, you know, she writes a book where she's explicitly saying that, like, oh, this innocence is good, but it causes these things it's like, well, I, why is it good then? You haven't actually demonstrated it ever being good. You've only demonstrated it being bad. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a lot of the problems, a lot of the problems, the supposed theological problems that uh, Emilio, for instance, has throughout the book. Um, and we're, we're going to, you know, just as an aside, we're going to go through the plot briefly and sort of summarize kind of everything that's going on and all these people in just a second so bear with me for a second but a lot of the problems that emilio has with his theology um i think you could you know kind of deal with a lot of them if you just have him be a little bit less naive and and like naive is almost the wrong word because like he's he's smart he's also suffered before he's not a Mm -hmm. sheltered guy he's not supposed to be a sheltered guy right like he he had a tough upbringing you know well and so it doesn't make any sense that he would like not be familiar with the possibility of negative outcomes to the extent (laughs) that he's portrayed as being unfamiliar with it. I mean, he's not just, and this is true of all the characters is they're only naive when the plot demands that they be. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's another, that's actually, there's two, I would sort of describe the things that I really don't like about this book is falling into two basic categories, the preciousness stuff. And then there's the stuff that, you know, relates to the plot. Uh, you know, an uncharitable way to describe it would be it's it's like railroading. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's some of this stuff that I, that, that I don't mind, and I'll mention it when we go through the plot. And there's some of the stuff that I mind a lot more. Um, so why don't we yeah, actually deal with the plot. go into the plot now? Yeah. yeah. So, um, I I've, first, I think it's worth talking just about the like narrative structure a little bit, which we actually did in the in the pre-read episode just briefly, which is that the narrative takes place in two different sections and they cut between each other a lot. One is sort of the like present day of the book is in the like 2060s and it's after the mission to Rakat has like gone bad and um, Emilio is the only person from the mission who like makes it back to Earth. Um, And then the other part is sort of the past of the mission and the mission itself, which starts in, um, I think it's like 2015 or something like that and goes through the kind of like 2019 and then there's time dilation stuff. Um, But but mostly happens kind of in like the late 20 teens, like more or less where we are right now in the real world. So it's kind of interesting in in that aspect. You see a lot of like, you know, 
what the 1990s thought that the like 2000 teens were going to look like, which is always funny. That actually, I I quite enjoyed some of those things because, yeah. you know, some of the stuff she gets kind of weirdly right. Right. And some of the stuff is like horribly wrong, obviously. Right. But I think a lot of it, I mean, like one thing that happens is like, you know, like Japan is the ascendant power in Asia, which I think was just Ugh. like common, like commonly thought in the 90s was going to be no. the case. Oh, my God. This is something that really annoyed me, actually. So that's obviously she gets that totally wrong. I think by, I would say it like this, that was commonly thought in the 80s. Yeah. And by, by the time this book was written, she could have known, she should have known, okay. perhaps, we can, that, we can, that was we can, not going to happen. We can sidebar this while we talk about the plot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sure, Sorry. yes, but... Um, so anyway, uh, so that's kind of the narrative structures of these two streams, and they cut back and forth, and they also, towards the middle and end of the book, often, like, you'll, you'll sometimes see the events happening on Rakat through the eyes of the characters there. And then sometimes you'll see them as being recounted by Emilio in the future. And so they like, it gets a little bit confusing, like kind of like when you're hearing about what stuff like jumps back and forth a lot. I mentioned at the beginning of the book, it, it like, like I kind of wish I'd known about that structure just going in because I was sort of confused in the beginning of the book. And then once I got the hang of it, it becomes really easy. And it's, it, it, I think, it, I think actually the structure works. I think so too. I, I, I found the beginning to be fine. It was, you know, it was okay. I mean, you know, right. it's, it's obviously less straightforward than, than some books, but it didn't, it didn't bother me. Right. No, it didn't. I don't, I wouldn't say it bothered me. It was mostly, you know, I think as a reader, I can get confused by that stuff sometimes if I, especially if I don't know to like be looking forward to it. I also have a really hard time with names in books. I always have. And so when you have a lot of the same kinds of names, like there's a lot of Italian and um, Spanish names in the book and uh, that, that, that would get difficult for me at times seeing, seeing like, like Sandoz and Mendez and <laughs> all these like names that end in, in like D E Z kind of in the book, like would, would, would give me a little bit of trouble. It's legit. It is, uh, you know, some of the characters are a little bit uh, interchangeable, not necessarily the main characters, but some of the other secondary characters uh, can be yeah. a little interchangeable just because they, there isn't really much to distinguish them, honestly. Right. And especially when like, they're both like interchangeable and their names are very similar. I just, I just can't do. I know other people have an easy time with this. Like it's something that's very difficult for me in books. So I found that a little bit. Well, that, that's I think why the beginning was kind of confusing for me because I was having a hard time paying attention to which character was which, just at a like purely like structural level. Um, yeah. So should we should we go through the plot? So I guess the plot begins. Emilio comes back to Earth. It's kind of a crisis in the Vatican and specifically with the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. Um, be- and it begins in medias rest, just like this. By yes. The way. Yeah. Yes. Because something went bad with the mission. Somehow folks on Earth know it went bad. It had really like bad consequences for the Jesuits. And like as an order, they've like fallen in favor and there are a lot fewer of them now and blah, 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 like internal church politics. Um and then Emilio is obviously in really bad straits, too, because he spent the last couple of years alone on a spaceship coming back to Earth. He has scurvy. He is like malnourished. Yeah, we we don't know exactly what's wrong with him. 
Yeah, but I think we can. We, let's we know that he's quickly. in really bad let's, way. Let's, yeah. let's move yeah. to, you know, it's like he ends right. up having scurvy. He He's yeah. malnu- malnourished and um, his hands have been all like fucked up. Like they've they've been like his muscles have been taken apart and the bones elongated. And like he has these like strange. It's never described particularly well exactly what it what we're meant to like specifically what it's meant to be. But somehow like. His hands have been surgically altered to be much larger and longer, but also like unusable. Like he can't actually use his hands anymore. And the scurvy has made this worse because one of the things that scurvy does is it like reopens old scar tissue. Like like your scar tissue when you have scurvy or when you're malnourished will actually fall apart sooner than your regular skin will. And so his his hands are like beginning to kind of like fall apart when we first meet him. So he's, he's in a really bad way and mentally he's really, he's not doing well. either. Yeah. He's, he's, he's sort of obviously super traumatized and like fucked up mentally, you know, by stuff that we don't know about yet. Right. And so, um, I think, I think from there, like knowing that we can kind of go through, maybe not like in order of like the way we learn it in the narrative, but just of the, of the story <laughs> yeah. itself, which yeah, is, you know, it would be tough to re, Capitulate the whole right. book. I think I think overall the book kind of starts out in the 2010s, 20 teens. Emilio Sandoz is a Jesuit priest um, who kind of ties all the other characters together. Um, he is a linguist. He has learned a bunch of languages. He is originally from Puerto Rico and has like jumped all around kind of the earth, like learning different languages and doing different missions and has been in a lot of hard places doing that. Um he meets up with an older couple named George and Anne. Uh, we mentioned that there's a like audience stand-in character, and that would be Anne is is explicitly Mary Doria Russell's audience stand-in or not audience yeah. uh, author, author stand-in. stand-in. Yeah. Thank you. And um, we also know Jimmy, who is Emilio's friend and an astronomer um, who works in Puerto Rico and is very tall. <laughs> That's like one of his character traits is that he's real tall. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and that actually like that, that matters later when they're on Rakat. Um, and then there is a um, and this I found kind of interesting. There's a there's an artificial intelligence researcher is kind of I don't know if that's quite the right word to say named Sofia Mendez. Um, she is, she knows Emilio because she had a, she like built an AI based on the way that he learns languages to also learn languages. And she's working with Jimmy in Puerto Rico to more or less automate his astronomy job, which I found kind of funny. Yeah. I, so I, one of the things I liked that Mary, Mary Dory Russell got, uh, sort of accurate, not well, kind of thematically accurate, accurate at uh, least. Yeah, thematically accurate, exactly. About the future, when she predicted this sort of near future that we now live in, was this sort of um, the way the the the, the way that a, there's a lot of fear about jobs getting automated, um, and so in her world, uh, there are. Uh, a lot of jobs have have been automated and more jobs and more jobs and more jobs are continuously being automated. And there's this sort of like group of like, you know, Ronin mercenaries who are AI researchers who go around the world picking jobs to automate. And what they do is they, you know, they study you, they follow you around with your cooperation, hopefully, uh, for a while until they learn everything that you do and they write an AI that does that. Um, and that's kind of a cool near future thing right actually it's like it clearly sort of- not the way that ai actually like works now or it's not it's not how we automate jobs now but it, it's right. it's 
the effects are kind of similar and I almost yeah. wish they'd gone a little bit more into the like neo ludutism of the of Jimmy and some of the others where they're it almost feels like they're setting up an element of like oh like people don't like AI and AI is bad and there's a backlash but then it's only ever yeah. really used as a way for Jimmy and Sophia to like meet and interact more. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's actually like, you know, when when I was reading the first half of this book, I mean, this is one of the things I thought was really awesome. It's like a really cool, thematically, it's so apt. Because even though, you know, it doesn't really capture how AI, like what AI is really or how it works in the world now, it does capture the politics and the social awareness of it very well. And the like individual social responses to it, I would say. Yeah. But then it oh, just yeah. gets so, dropped. It, it's like when it is no uh, longer useful for the plot, it ceases to become a thing that anyone thinks about, cares about at all. Yeah. Yeah. So so these characters eventually like all end up meeting, uh, going to a lot of dinner parties at George and Anne's house because they really like to throw dinner parties. And we have a lot of dialogue heavy dinner parties that don't move the plot forward that much. Um, and then Jimmy. So Jimmy discovers alien life. Jimmy is, we should say, Jimmy at this point, like his job is that he is like a junior astronomer person with like a master's degree or something, but right, not a PhD. Right. And he's, works and he's listening for, with SETI. He's doing like SETI yeah, well, research. It's not, yeah, it's not even his, I don't even think it's his main thing that he does. It's just like one of the things that he does. Is no, that he, it's, it's, it's one of the like, you know tasks that have been given to him by the radio yeah. telescope that he works for i mean it, yeah, like he, the exact he works why at doesn't matter for this I, I just kind of want to move through the plot as quickly as okay, possible okay. um there's obviously a lot of nuance to a lot of these things but it like it's not that important like whether he works directly for seti or not in the grand scheme of things yeah so he he discovers alien life right. and he tells all his closest friends who are his circuit family we should say that by this point you know all these characters emilio george and jimmy not quite yet, Sophia, but like she's starting to become part of they've the all family. kind of gl- they've glommed onto each other and right. they've become a kind of surrogate family for each other. Right. Um, uh, George and Anne are childless, which is like important for the plot. Like all of them are child. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Emilio is like celibate. He's a priest. Um, and Jimmy is yep. young and unmarried and same with Sophia. Sophia. Yeah. It, it, Sophia is actually a slave, which is maybe worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. And. I want to talk a lot more about her. Yeah, and her section. yeah. yeah. I, I don't want to dig into it entirely right here, but like Sophia is actually owned by someone, and so the work she's she like does an is indentured not her own. servant. Yeah, she's like a, an indentured servant who's trying to work off her contract. Right. Um. And she previously, um, she had a really rough childhood. That's maybe underselling it. She was <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, her she she was raised in Istanbul, and her she was a Sephardic Jew raised in Istanbul and Istanbul kind of was in this world um, overcome by sectarian warfare and her family were killed and she was forced to become a child prostitute to survive and then eventually became this indentured servant who does AI research. Um, Just as a random aside, I know we don't want to get too many into the weeds, but another actual cool thing I thought about how she pictured the future was that she has this idea where children kind of mortgage their future earnings um, to, to, to gain access to, uh, uh, education in the present. Um, and so basically she gets bought her, her, her kind of life is bought by this guy who's her, you know, who's just a rich guy. We don't know much about him. And then once she makes enough money for him, like she'll be able to like own her own profits after that point. But until she does, like she's under his control and... 
Yeah. Right. So there's a lot to say about. Yeah. Let's 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 not get too. I don't want to get too deep into any of this stuff because I fear that it just (laughs) our conversation won't make sense to someone who hasn't read the book at this point. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, they all get together. And before Jimmy tells anyone else, he tells his friends and they decide, wait, we can we can go there. We can go there on a mission to Rakat. Like Emilio knows languages and knows anthropology. Uh, George is an engineer and is a doctor, a medical doctor and an anthropologist. Um, Jimmy is a is a physicist and a, and, a, and an astronomer. And Sophia knows AI, so she can actually write AI to like, you know, deal with the spaceship that's going to take them there and fly the spaceship and stuff like that. Um, so you know, Jimmy eventually has to tell the authorities, but in the meantime, Emilio is working with the Jesuits to um, have a mission to Rakat. Like, and this is, you know, this this made some amount of sense to me. The idea that the Jesuits, like, are a scientific and exploration centric, um, like, society inside the Catholic Church, then they have a lot of funds. And the idea that they would, you know, in a future where asteroid mining happens, and like, you can actually, like, you know put an engine on an asteroid and go somewhere somewhere somewhat easily that they would be one of the first to do it. You know, I, I think that works well enough. Yeah, I think up to this point, up to so we're now like, you know, a ways into the book. This and is like halfway through they, the book. Yeah, they, they they put together a mission to go to Rakat. And the mission is staffed by the characters we've just met, plus this guy JD, who is Emilio's father figure in the church. And he's like a mm-hmm. as Adrian put it, a sweary Texan caricature. <laughs> Which is a very good summary of him. Yeah, um, he and then a couple of other guys. That is just like yeah. really obnoxious. I f- I found it really obnoxious. Yeah. yeah, and then a couple of other guys, but mostly the mission is them, and um and they go, and so this right. is like halfway through the book by the time they leave, and up to this point, I'm like, you know, I would say it's pretty good. It's fair. It's it, it's it, a, like, it's an interesting yeah, it's book. A good book. Yeah, you know, it's a very character centric kind of you know almost like. I won't say that. It was a very character centric, like interesting book so far. Um, also, in the meantime, while this has been happening, um, I, I think just like flash, flash back, flash forward, like there have been interspersed with this um, all these kind of like happenings that honestly don't matter that much at the end, where um, uh, Emilio in the future is taken to kind of this compound where a couple of like Jesuit priests are like interrogating him. And it, it, interrogation isn't quite the word. They're like both trying to help him heal, but also trying to learn the story from him about the mission to Rakat. I think we find out somewhere in here that there were like radio recordings got sent back to Earth. So they actually while they're asking him and pretending that they don't actually know what happened, they actually have a bunch of like video and radio and audio recordings of like what, what went down, but they're trying to get his perspective on it before he knows that they know what actually happened. And there's this kind of like a little bit of like, I want to say political maneuvering that is just like not all that important at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems I think is that these, uh, it serves a kind of a, an okay structural purpose, but yeah, structurally well, it I, works. I, I, I mean, throughout the first half of the book, it, it's not clear that it's not going to matter. Yes, but by the end of the book, it turns out all a lot of these like a lot of the characters, a lot like it could have been narrowed a lot more. It could have really yeah, been and, and they're also up. repetitive. You know, mm-hmm. it, they end up kind of going over the same emotional beats. Right. I would say in enough the, times that it's boring. Throughout the book, it's sort of like fifty-fifty in the future and in the past. 
and where the past is our future, but whatever, right? Like in the kind of future of the book and the past of the book, when in reality, I think the first half of the book could have been a lot more set in the past with like just brief flash forwards to the future. And then once they get to Rakat, do more of a 50-50 structure. Like it could, like a lot of the early sort of like, you know, Italian countryside, like talking to Emilio stuff could have been condensed. And like, I think that would have worked. Eh, I don't know. I To me, I, I think of it a little, like I think of it more like the first half of the book works a lot better than the, the last half of the book to me That's it's like true. the problem is in the last half of the book not so much right. the first half. i just wonder if the problem anyway. in the last half of the book would have been ameliorated a little bit it wouldn't have been so repetitive if there was less stuff earlier on it's like yeah but saying. i would rather just change it <laughs> <laughs> fair fair so um yeah, so at this point they go to Rakat and uh, and so Rakat is the name of the the planet um and they they the mission on Rakat is this is where for me a lot of it broke down. I was really looking forward to this like great kind of like a, it's an alien world it's really different it's like a group of people in like close quarters trying to like f- learn about the world there. And and I'll say there were a couple of things. One is that like the way they did science wasn't very good, especially when like I've read a lot of first contact science fiction and I've read a lot of science fiction that deals with like science being done and it like, it just never really rang true. And it's particularly surprising to me, given that like Mary Doria Russell was a field scientist that she doesn't have a very like compelling like view of field science being done. There are a couple of quotes from her interview that I would like to read that helped me to think about this let's, problem. Let's let's do that when but we talk we can about do that the later. Themes. Let's go through the, yeah. the, the, the with plot. with with respect to this issue. I mean, I think even aside from the problem that, that I agree totally with everything you just said. Even aside from that, it's not clear what their mission is. Right. In their minds. Right. It's not clear. Like, are they there to evangelize? They're if not. So, they're explicitly what's their plan? not there to like try to convert people. So they claim, but like, if not, what, what are they, what are they doing? What's their yeah. goal? It's not clear at all to me what they are, right. what they think they're trying to do. It's also not clear at all to me, like what, how they operate. I mean, it just doesn't seem like there's much in the way of organization or like careful thought put into stuff. Every now and then we are told that a character is like carefully thinking about something, but I don't no, see, see the it. evidence of that. Right. Instead, I see a lot of like random mistakes that make no sense. Right. So <laughs> they, they circle the planet. They, you know, look at it from afar. They eventually choose like a field to land in. They land in that field. They do tests on the plants and animals there, eventually begin eating them. One of the Catholic priests just like dies suddenly. And it's it's I, I think it it's meant to be. I don't know this. This was a, a really where the book started losing me, which was one of these priests just dies suddenly and we never learn why. And 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 that's supposed to be part of the point that we don't learn why and don't know what's actually happening and they don't know because they're a small mission far away from home and all they have is the resources that they have but this happens again in the future like another priest gets sick and there's just this kind of sense of um i don't know like they can't figure it out and like that's that's just fine from the author the characters do try to save the guy's life but from the author's perspective from the book's perspective there's this kind of weird fatalism where yeah, it's like oh he yeah, died that's a great the, way they don't the, the real thing is they don't actually investigate this as characters if if we are meant to take this as some kind of philosophical statement or some kind of challenge to the theology that we're meant to have there's no real dealing with that no. going on in the book i mean the characters almost like 
move on as quickly as they can and and fine but like right. maybe that's realistic in some sense but it's just not dealt with it it has it may or may not have realism but it definitely doesn't have verisimilitude exactly to put it so um eventually they like move their encampment and encounter the like what they think is the like alien species that they've that they've heard through the radio waves because they've heard singing and that that's the first the first thing that they've heard. right so that's they what think, jimmy detected right yeah. and so they they find these creatures that are like i know they're kind of like fuzzy cat people is that is that they are they are a lot like fuzzy cat people yeah and Anne thinks they're beautiful they're super cute sounding and they all like to cuddle <laughs> which is really nice yeah <laughs> they're very like, social creatures and they're kind of dumb is is the other thing i don't know like not dumb as an unintelligent but as in like incurious i think we're also meant to think that they're unintelligent like they're not like the characters argue about this a little right but like i think we're meant to think that they you know they're capable of a lot but they sort of don't their their culture and their technology is not very sophisticated they they don't have their own drive necessarily um and that that's what Mm -hmm. i meant by incurious is they seem to be you know like obviously like they have language and tool using and Emilio like learns their language and they're all able to talk to each other, blah, blah, blah. And they live in a society that is like very clearly a society. Um, and so what eventually becomes clear, and I think this becomes clear to the reader along, at least it became really clear to me immediately, but it, the book takes its time actually like presenting it, which is that like, there are actually two alien, like sentient alien species on this planet, the one that we've met. And then the like smarter, like, kind of you know more intelligent like actually in charge species and the species that's actually in charge it so happens was a predator species and this other species was their prey and is still kind of like a subservient species to the main in charge prey species yeah or predator species Uh, sorry a lot to say about that too let's keep going right so 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 (laughs) So, yeah so They live together um, with this species. Uh, there's an accident such that they can't get back to their main ship. So they're stuck on Rakat until whenever another, you know, someone else comes pretty much. Or if they figure out how to synthesize more fuel. Right. Which is this kind of vague subplot that is <laughs> doesn't end up mattering in the end. Um, so they, they live with these creatures. They learn as much as they can about them. In the meantime, there's a um, there's a there's a predator character who... Um, more or less like owns the prey like so 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 it's it's a sort of serfdom style thing where he owns the land that they're on and also them by proxy of that and they work for him gathering flowers for perfume because like smell is really important to these predator creatures so they like you know like perfume is art in the same way that like visual art is art for us uh, which is cool i i like that little i like that too a lot. yeah that was nice. there are a lot of like little details that i constantly wish were like more explored in this thing which is not it's not a bad mm-hmm. thing like oftentimes those little details that you wish were more explored is like good that's a good way of keeping my interest high yeah um but uh so they work with him and over time um eventually a couple of members of the crew are able to go to the city um and there's yeah so there's uh, for a little while they they sort of as soon as they meet the predator guy they sort of their view of this world changes and they shift from wanting to stay for a while to maybe like when we can let's try to get to one of the cities where the predators live and find out more one thing that was annoying to me at this point is that it's not clear exactly what they want to accomplish well no i think they want to accomplish like synthesizing fuel 
Like that's yeah, yeah, a big okay. component Other than of that, it. Yes. They want to synthesize some more fuel so they can go back to their mothership. Right. Other than that, it's totally not clear to me what they are trying to do. Right. Are they simply trying to learn things? Right. If so... Well, and I think if it feels like I'm rushing through I mean, this a little bit, it's because the book also rushes through it. Like these, these, these parts I'm talking about compose like the last quarter of the book and only half of that because the other half is taken up by the like future flash forward pieces. Um, so maybe a little bit more because those pieces are often talking about what happened on Rakat, but there's still, there's like a lot of it when it gets to the planet, especially once they start meet up with the like prey predator species, you only have a quarter of the book left and it's really rushing through this stuff. The book, yeah, the tempo of the events happening increases monotonically yeah. throughout the book. Yeah. And so by the end of the book, it's like stuff is really getting rushed through. Like to the point where when we get to the climax, it's like it doesn't even happen on screen. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And so the 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 a couple of folks go with the predators. Um meanwhile, uh Anne and George and a few others have created a uh, or not. Sorry, not George. Anne and um, Jimmy and a few others have created a garden, um, which and this is where stuff starts to get really weird. So they. Even though the the prey species is like intelligent and, you know, knows how to like harvest flowers and plants and stuff, and they know that they they only eat plants and they 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 are a harvesting species. Uh and even though the predator species also farms, like the prey species have never thought to farm before. And they learn gardening techniques from Anne and begin building their own gardens. And because of that, they're able to go into uterus more often. Right. Is that the or. Yeah. That, so the we're not we're meant, <laughs> we're, we're, we're meant to believe. Yeah. We're, we're, Sorry. <laughs> we're meant to believe that the way that this planet. Like functions politically and economically is that the predator species comprise four percent of the population the total population predator prey and they uh keep their own population static and they keep their prey population static by limiting their food and thus their so they can't go into reproductive so cycles right they can't reproduce very frequently and all of this you know this is very strange and and like in some sense, uh, you know, it's like gesturing towards some cool ideas, but like it also like doesn't it's totally unclear to me how that would actually work, given right. that all of these people are meant to be intelligent. And in it's not sense. explored like it's it's explored as much as we have just talked about it. Right. It, it all is described very quickly. Right. Um, um, by yeah. Emilio to to the other priests, pretty much just in, in as much detail as we have. Um, and so the while the. While several of the human characters are away, a couple of things happen like very in quick succession. One is that one of these predator species who is an outlaw kills Anne and JD just like rather suddenly. Um, and J yeah, JD is like dying from some weird disease that's never explained. Right. Which is annoying. And then Anne gets all of a sudden, killed off screen. And then when the characters come back, they discover that that's happened. Um, but also that and I, for, I actually forget here specifics, but pretty much the other thing that happens is because these um, the prey aliens have been procreating like more predators come and like kill all the children because they don't yeah. want there to be too many of them. Yeah, basically, it seems like what happens is a patrol of prey creatures shows up 
investigating reports of like there being too many predator prey. Uh, sorry, a patrol of predator creatures shows up investigating reports of there being too many prey, prey. children. Yeah, and and they this kill is them. all. They just they and, just they, and they just them. kill all the children, and they also kill Sophia and her unborn child and yes. Jimmy. Yes, because Sophia speaks out against it, and Sophia. In speaking out against it, also for the very first time in the history of this entire planet, gives the prey species the idea that because they are numerically superior, they can revolt. This has literally never been a thought that has ever crossed their mind before. But as soon as it crosses their mind, they're able they're they are able to revolt and like, you know, do so somewhat successfully obviously like a lot of people are dying and the predator species has guns like they're at a technologically advanced enough to be you know more or less like us in the 90s i would say maybe maybe us in the 50s or something um so they have guns it's a big slaughter um a lot of the human characters die the human characters left um our force march that would be emilio and mark who's kind of like a french character who doesn't make a big he, he doesn't really do anything else so we haven't talked about him um they're force march for a long time eventually Ami- yeah, this like, is when the real serious violent stuff starts kind of with their deaths right right and this is also where like the plot is happening almost as quickly as i'm describing it um, yeah the they're force march for a long time eventually their like predator friend the one who they've met up with before like finds emilio and mark and tries to save both of them mark dies emilio survives uh he asks emilio if he wants to become like his ward emilio agrees and in return they fuck up his hands in order to like prove that he's a warlike and this is this kind of cultural thing where they like you know surgically alter your hands so you can't use them but you become a ward of another predator and that predator has to feed you and stuff right emilio is of course not at all aware of this and so to him it's like this horrific torture right he's subjected to his hands are like you know disfigured permanently because he didn't understand what was being asked of him. Right. And then eventually it's it's unclear at this point of the like up until this point, you've had chapters from the 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 predator friend, like from his actual perspective, which is actually kind of interesting. That stops at this point. So we don't really understand why, but eventually he grows bored of Emilio and sells Emilio into like forced prostitution. Well, we should say from the beginning of our interaction with this predator guy, um his goal his like one overarching goal is to become allowed to procreate the way the predator society oh, works right, is right right only only certain of them only first and second born are allowed to procreate and he's a third born and so he the only way for him to become allowed to procreate to found a new lineage is to found a lineage which he has is which is a privilege that can only be given to him by a certain category of person and so right. he's been searching this he whole pretty time much ever needs since like he, a prince to like knight him in order to like found his own lineage I would right say. in order it's to have a really case. high high level overview and we don't learn much more than that and so that's right. why he sells emilio into this like sexual slavery in return for founding his own lineage right up to this point he's been kind of like trying to figure out how to turn these humans into lineage rights right. and then he finally presumably we're not told but like presumably he figures out how to do that by selling emilio as a sex slave right so emilio is a sex slave and then eventually and it's really bad for him obviously um and eventually more humans come to ricotte rescue him 
and send him back to Earth, and then they disappear, and we don't ever learn what happened well, to them. Yeah, Assumably the one other thing. Bad. Yeah, and then so when he's rescued, um, he is. Well, this is what so, I was going to go into. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go you, ahead, you, 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 yeah. I, so at this point, like, you know, the 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 2060s plot starts. Right. He gets back to Earth, um, and the thing that we throughout the whole book have been told was that Emilio like prostituted himself and did so willingly. And that's what everyone on earth thinks has happened. And so when we learn at the end of the book that he was actually made a sexual slave, this is supposed to be some, the book treats it as a big revelation and treats him saying it as like a big emotional moment where he actually admits to himself that that's what happened. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's so it's so weird and implausible that that's supposed to be a reveal because it's so obviously what happened the whole time. Or right, at least like right. it's but so obvious. Book, you can't that, like, argue that the book does treat it as like as to a me, reveal. Yeah, to me, it wasn't so much to me. It wasn't so much that he was like revealing a secret. It wasn't like that. It was just that he was revealing. He was like having a character moment where he like acknowledges a thing. Right. Rather than that. It's like a secret we weren't meant to know. Right. So, so it book, was a reveal in some sense, but like right. to me, I felt like it wasn't it wasn't like a twist so much as it was. Let's a, let's get into this. Yeah. I just want to finish up because it's really quickly. Yeah, yeah. He's, oh, yeah, he's the, on Earth and there's oh, a but, lot. But sorry, sorry. Yeah. The one other thing is that he, he does um, when he is rescued, he's so far gone because of all the incredible torment that he's suffered. He's just like worked himself up into the state where it's the next person that like walks through the door. He's going to murder them. And, you know, somehow the next person that walks through the door is this child alien. prey species who he was friends with. And he kills her before he knows who it is. Right. Right. And right. And so and so what the people on Earth think this whole time is that, oh, he's like willingly uh, sold himself into sexual slavery and also become a child murderer and like murdered a child like unprovoked. Right. Which is kind of true. <laughs> yeah. But I he's mean, like, given absolution for that, too. Well, whatever. So, yeah. So then the, the the really quickly, the future, you know, the night, the 2060s plot is that, like, the Jesuits are trying to figure out what happened. They keep talking to him. There's a lot of sort of, like, emotional. And it's almost, you know, I, I mentioned in, in Use of Weapons that the kind of, like, going backwards in time thing was a little bit like therapy. Like, this is also very therapeutic in the sense of, like, they're trying to get him to come to terms with what happened to himself so that he can tell them and then they can figure out what to do. Uh, eventually he does. Like, he, you know... He stops being such a jerk about like these braces they're having him wear in his hands and he takes physical therapy and he gets better at using his hands with the braces. He talks more and more about what went on in Rakat. He realizes that they have this information and that he begins to like talk about, you know, oh, well, this is what you saw. This is what actually happened. This is why we did X, Y or Z. This is what we learned afterwards. That gives you more context. And then the end of the book, he like admits to everyone that he was raped. That's there's this big scene where he's like, I was raped not a prostitute. And that's like this kind of like end of a chapter scene. And then the next chapter is the last chapter. And we learn that there's a new mission to Rakat getting put together and he's going to be on it. End scene, end book. End scene, end book. Great. Um, One other thing I would say uh, real quick is that I think actually one of the things that the book does well 
that I didn't mention before is that it actually handles like Emilio's recovery pretty well. If we grant, mm. if we mm-hmm. grant a lot of the assumptions that the author makes, I think that they handle the difficulty of his recovery pretty well. Yes. We have to grant some things. We have to grant to some true. things. But, and it's also like, while it's handled well, it's also just very boring. And it inevitably. Like, yeah. And it cuts off. Like there's so much of this book is, is focused on that recovery, which is kind of boring and relies on all of these stuff, us having to grant. And it is at the expense of seeing the like more interesting stuff happening on the planet. Like really like a less than a quarter of the book actually takes place on Rakat, especially when you counter that, like while they're on Rakat, there's like every other chapter is taking place back on earth in the future. And it just, it makes for a very, you know, even while that's true, I was often very bored by those parts of the book. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I didn't like the way that it ended. I really didn't. Um, Cool. So that's, that's the plot. (laughs) Hopefully that didn't take too long. Um, (laughs) We're going to have to figure out in the future how to like both talk about the themes and the plot part while also, I also feel like I did all the talking there. So like we should, we should No, that's fine. We'll, we'll get better about that. But, um, that's totally fine. I mean, um, so uh, it's theme time. Theme Theme's time. time. I mean, this is the this is actually the fun part. I feel like um, where we can actually <laughs> talk about the the book as it exists and like what it means. Because for me, that's you know that's why I like science fiction is because it means more than just like the plot and characters. Like there's there's ideas behind it, and like good science fiction is a thought experiment. I would say. And they're not all good science fiction, but like a lot of the science fiction I like is thought experiments. Adrian is post plot. (laughs) I like plot too. I just, you know, we're post the part of the plot part of this episode. So I am. I I like we're both post plot. This episode is post plot. (laughs) I like trolling you. That's what I like. So we have a number of themes here and you know, we, we talked about we, we have colonialism at the top of the list, but I actually don't want to talk about that first. I think I think we should actually dig in deeper to some of the stuff that came up during the plot discussion. And then I can talk, I can give my like piece on <laughs> why I hated the book from that perspective. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's do the twist thing. We, we already kind of started to talk about. That. Yeah. I mean, that that is, you know, I know that you like so my take on this was that. Twist might not be the right word, but I do think that that is structurally how the book presents it. The book tells you over and over again, and the characters in the book tell you over and over again that Emilio is a whore, is the word used frequently, that he has prostituted himself, um, and that it was willing. And, and, And they actually mention like that part of what they're trying to do in the interrogation of him is to figure out why he was willing to become a prostitute, why he wanted to become a prostitute is sometimes the word used. And I don't like it. For me, it's not played as dramatic irony. It's not played as a thing that the characters think one thing, but the audience thinks the other. Instead, oh, that's complete. Yeah, I did think it is dramatic. I did think it was dramatic irony. It was. It was sort of obvious to me from the beginning that that wasn't going to be how things actually had turned out. And I then mean, that was obvious you know, to me as well, clearly. But like, I, I still didn't feel that it was. I didn't feel that it was meant to be obvious. I mean, I felt like we were the same way that we were supposed to think the characters were funny and they were not. uh, Yeah, I didn't think it was like that. I thought it was more like, um, 
you know, so many of the characters in the future are sympathetic to Emilio. And it's also the case that they are skeptical themselves. Like they, they're both sympathetic to him and skeptical of this story that they've heard. And they want the real story from him to so, to such an extent that it seems like, okay, well, we're meant to think that at the very least, this is, this is not like, it, it didn't have the feel of he was on trial. It had the feel of there's some people who like think that he was misquoted and want to hear him's version. You know, that's kind of the sense that I had the entire time. I okay, that's interesting. I don't know if I agree with that. I didn't have that sense with them. I have the sense with a few of the characters, but I think with the characters who are actually leading it, I didn't get that sense from them. Well, no, the the father general, I thought had that opinion. The only one I thought who didn't have that opinion was the asshole guy. There's this one priest mm-hmm. in the future who's like who's like anti-Emilio. He like he's the one who thinks that it's totally true all the things Emilio was accused of are totally true maybe i've like seen too much game of thrones and westworld and this kind of like thing but i guess i never trusted the the father general i always assumed he had like the worst intentions at heart but was presenting (laughs) himself as this kind of like nice guy i can see why you'd think that but i think we're meant to think he's a nice guy okay that's that's interesting i still i still contend that the way that 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 it can't i I legitimately don't think that we were supposed to know from so early on that, like, of course he wasn't a prostitute. Like, oh, no, no, no. We're meant to think that I, so my, my impression was there's this story being told about this character and like some people don't know if it's entirely true. And that's the attitude that we have going through the book. We're just like, we know that there's this story that like, we've only heard one version of and it. There's a lot of skepticism surrounding it. And so what really happened, you know? But I think I, so I think that still like in that case, like it's still supposed to be surprising to a degree that he was actually like sold into a form of sexual slavery. When to me that was like obvious from like second one. Like, of course, that was going to be the way that this shakes yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, like, there's I nothing agree. else makes sense. And the other piece, here, just, just, to, just to jump yeah. in really quickly, sorry. The other piece that's important to me here is that, like, if it's that obvious to me, it should have at least been a question that the characters had. And it never is. The characters never question his willingness to do this and his own agency in making this decision. And the fact that they never say that out loud is part of what makes me think that it's for the audience supposed to be a twist. Like if it were actually a thing that we were supposed to question, the characters would question it more openly. Well, I I did get the impression that all of the Jesuit characters, except the one asshole guy, questioned it. The the people- No, the way they questioned it is why he would do it, not whether he did. Well, I mean, as it, I mean- No, I, I, I didn't get that impression. I don't, I didn't get the impression that they thought that he had like willingly done it. Because I did. It I did absolutely. But like, I don't know. I just don't recall any particular thing that gave me that impression. The the characters for whom I I totally agree with you are uh, the two the, the two humans or however many humans who rescued him. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense that they would assume that he had oh, not yeah. like. Why would he was obviously a prisoner, right? Like he's <laughs> right, like kept so in the cell. Clearly a prisoner. It makes no sense that they would assume. Now, obviously, it's crazy that literally they rescue, they open the door to rescue him, and then he murders a child. And that's the first thing he does. And so, okay, fine. It makes sense that they would react to that. In, in a, but even in a, that didn't make sense to me that he would do that because this whole time we're told over and over again that one of the key defining characteristics of these animals is that they are very small as children and get very large as adults. And so 
why would he, after like years of being on this planet, like not notice that, oh, this is a small one. This is not one of the predators because it's a small one. It's way too small to be a predator. Like how that makes any sense. I, I don't know. Well, I, I don't think we're meant to th- like, I mean, I think we're meant to think that he was just totally out of his mind. Like he was just like not sure, you know, I mean, but it's still weird. It didn't make a whole lot of sense why he would kill Ascama. Ascama is the name of the, the right, alien he right, kills. Yeah. I don't I don't get it. In order for me to buy his his um being out of his mindness, it would help if it was like on the screen. But in fact, his killing of Ascama is never on screen. Like we are never actually walked no. through it. It's described by Emilio in, well, in and like also to one of the priests his in a very, of- very abbreviated fashion. His state of mind when he's describing that, I mean, he describes a very logical consideration and reasonable consideration. Like, he reasons with himself that he is going to kill someone. And he, like, he is rational about that decision. It's not one taken in the heat of the moment. It's one that he is sitting there and he decides, I'm going to kill the next person who comes in here. And he thinks about how to do it and why to do it and where to do it. And like, it's very considered. And so the idea that he's out of his mind entirely isn't actually born by like the, the events that we do see on screen. I agree. I think if to sell that you have to, you have to do a lot more showing and a lot less telling. So, so I would say in general, my view of the climax of the book, if we talk about this as not like the The twist, twist, but the climax, the climax, yeah. I think the climax does not work. I think the climax has a lot of problems. Yeah. I don't really quite agree with this twist framing, but like that's fair. Everything else is completely I'm on board. Like the ultimately, you know, the climax of the book relies on a lot of things that are assumed and not borne out, just like a lot of other things about the book. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of those assumptions I- I- indeed. And a lot of those assumptions are like I mean, it, it has this fundamental problem that it's both really terrible and unjustified. Yeah. I mean, this is something we haven't talked about as much, but like the, the violence and awfulness of the book are like one of the sort of points that the author seems to be wanting to make is that like this violence is totally unprovoked and unjustified. Let's uh, And we need to deal with that, you know, as readers. Right. And I would like to actually like come back to that like unprovoked and unjustified violence point Let's talk about the character motivations and decisions, because I think it's why the why it doesn't work and why it's unjustified. And then we can talk about colonialism and why she as an author was trying to justify it. Yeah, I think so. As far as the character motivations and decisions, um, you know, this ties back to the stuff that I didn't like about this book. I think that the characters do a lot of things that don't make sense. They only really make sense if you think of them as like puzzle pieces in this puzzle mm-hmm. that the author wants to exist it's like um, some sort of morality play and so they have to act in certain ways to get the like moral at the end that we want to see right i mean like you know everything from the lack of reasonable consideration that goes into a lot of the mission decisions that are made you know everything from like all the sort of like weird like dumbness about how they handle their mission like you know they waste a bunch of fuel because george Anne's husband the engineer guy decides to like do some like fun maneuvers in the lander right while they're landing on this alien planet it's like because he's a bit of a show off just generally 
Or right. like a that's, thrill seeker, I guess, maybe is more. Yeah, that just is like so like he's also this same character is presented as a conscientious and intelligent engineer who's like dedicated to the mission and like a good team player. Mm-hmm. And it's just like doesn't make sense that somebody would do that. Like it's also like maybe you could like portray like if you're going to portray somebody making a mistake, you have to do that. You can't just like say they made a mistake. Right. It's a lack. It's a lack of showing. Again, right. you know, this this character is is uh, we are told, uh, you know, has made this mistake, but we are not shown how that makes any sense or like how it happened or like why we should think of it as a right. true thing. Well, and we're not told for like 50 pages after he made the mistake. We are not told until it becomes important to the plot because two of the characters go back to their original landing site um, in a flyer. They end up breaking the flyer when they get there and they need to fly back to where their encampment is now with the, with the, with the prey aliens. And so they end up flying the lander over there is what they decide to do. Cause at this point they're sure that the aliens aren't going to freak out over that kind of thing. They realize that they're aliens and everything. And it's not until they get back that we learn from JD that like George had fucked up in this way and like reduced the amount of fuel to the point that they couldn't fly the lander around. They could only get back once. They only had enough fuel to get all the way back up to the 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 orbit. But the I don't know, the thing about that is like okay, like and it's explicitly called out that like he never told anyone because he didn't want to embarrass George. And that's crazy. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> that I'm makes no sorry. sense. Like, like as all a your leader, lives that's depend an on this? insane decision to make. As a person, it's insane. We're not talking about some kind of like, you know, like TPS report in your office. Right. This is like a life and death thing on an alien planet light years from Earth. It's crazy. Right. Especially no when sense. two characters are going back and they know it's dangerous and they know they might not be able to land and they know that this might be a situation that they get into. He never thinks yeah. to tell them, don't take the lander. He never thinks to tell them, if you're going to get in the lander, go back to the ship and refuel. Because there's plenty of fuel on the ship. They have no problem getting like to the ship and back. It's just that the lander has a limited amount of fuel that it can actually take on board. Like, fine, that's a little bit of a contrivance, but like that's one that makes sense. That's how spaceships tend to work. Landing and taking off takes a lot more fuel than like jetting around space. So fine, whatever. Um, but like... Yeah, it's another thing that doesn't make sense to tell anyone. So that's already yeah, that's already two things that really don't make sense that relate to this like you know one part of the mission. And there's even more of these things that don't make sense. And I think we're harping on this one because it's such this like clear example of a thing that happens a lot. And the other the other piece that I mentioned already is the you know we're so frequently told that the characters are cracking each other up, and it is never funny. And like it's such a it's to me it was the most like. Like, like there are a lot of things I didn't like about the book. For the most part, I thought it was well written on a prose and kind of structural level. That was in particular the one thing that felt like kind of amateurish writing and like first novel style writing to me was the sense of like, we're getting told over and over that these people are funny, but we're not laughing. So it just like falls really flat and it makes it worse. Like none of the dialogue is bad on its own. It's only bad because we literally after every line have another line where it stops the dialogue in progress and tells us how much they laughed and then there's another line and then the dialogue stops and we're told how much they laugh and this happens over and over and over again um and i'm i really don't feel like i'm exaggerating (laughs) in what i'm saying here 
Here's an example of that, just for the sake of yeah, argument. So um, we are on the spaceship. All our crew is on the spaceship. They're about to head out of... Um, of Earth orbit. They're about to head out of the... So they're heading out of the solar system. Right. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the Stella Maris is on her way out of the solar system, Jimmy called out from the bridge. A remarkably short time after they got underway, a ragged cheer went up. Knobby hands wrapped around a cup of coffee. D.W. leaned over the table and said archly, Ms. Mendes, I imagine this qualifies you as the all-time champion, wanderingest Jew in history. Sophia smiled. He's been waiting for months to use that line, George snorted, watching the clocks and seeing the first discrepancies appear. I... <laughs> That's like so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I I just uh, uh, it's like it's like cringy. It is cringy. Yes, exactly. Like I cringed when you were reading it, and it's just like that's the you know that's the problem is so is so much of the humor is clearly meant to be humor, but it's not funny, and it's not that it's like problematically not funny. It's just that it's not really funny, and it's not funny in the way that the characters think it's funny, right? Like it's yeah. it's cringe humor, not like funny ha ha humor. Yeah. And it's fine, I mean, like, you know, whatever, like, they are the characters that they are, you know, but it's, right. but it's, it's just don't tell me stuff if it, you're not going to bear it out with your writing. You got to just show me what you want to show me and, well, and I'll he, make my own decision whether it's funny or not. If you're, if your dad character is going to make dad jokes, have everyone groan and not laugh. Well, it's okay if characters find stuff that I don't think is funny, funny. But don't tell me it's funny. Yeah. Right. Like, right. Right. I don't believe you. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I'm, like, well, I'm looking at it and you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So so that I think those two things, you know, and it's it's we, we keep har- I keep harping on the funny thing because it was, you know. It was the first thing that I noticed that I was like, ooh, I kind of don't like this. But I think to it me, acts yeah. as like a microcosm of like a lot of the things that I didn't like, which was that like the author intended one thing and we got another. And the author is like really yes. explicit about what she's intending. Like there's not there's not like a, I think she meant this, but I, but she actually meant that. It's like, no, she's telling you explicitly in the text and some in one case I'm about to get to like outside of the text. Yeah, I mean, so, you know. I think there's just so many examples of this. It's it's difficult to like know where to begin. But the one other thing I would like I would want to bring up that relates to that relates to the characters' motivations and decisions that really bothered me was the sense in which they don't talk about their mission very yeah, much. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. so much of the interaction of the like a lot of this book is the main characters interacting with each other. It's just okay, a lot the book of book is, is a hugely dialogue heavy book. I mean, it's mostly yeah. them talking to each other. Yeah. And and so they just fine. I like that. Yeah. A lot of what they're dealing with are their own relationships, which we'll talk about and their their various emotions and mm. whatever. One thing they never talk about is the mission, mm-hmm. like as a mission, like beyond the can we make it there? Like, what are they trying to accomplish? Yeah, like the why. How do they think? Yeah. What are they trying to accomplish? Why are they going? How do they think they're going to accomplish this? What happens if they fail? What happens if that fails? Right. Like, how will they it never affect ha- Earth? How will it affect the way mankind views itself? Right. What's the, how will it yeah, affect what's the, the way they view the aliens? Yeah. 
Nothing. Beyond your own personal, there's something incredibly navel-gazy about the book, therefore, because since they only end up talking about their own emotional relationships with each other and not the like incredible historical significance of this, you know, the, it, it ends up being like almost uh, like seeming self-centered, you know, they're, 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 they're like, they're not dealing with all the huge all the huge philosophical topics other than the, the implications to your personal theology. You know, what about the fact that we are recapitulating uh, a new world mission here? Like, why don't the characters themselves ever deal with that analogy? Why don't they, I mean, this will lead into other stuff you want to talk about, I know, and that I want to talk about, but like, why don't they ever consider the fact that there are a lot of examples in earth history of this type of mission? Right. Like, well, have they thought about those things? It never comes up. And it's it's one thing that, you know, I I, I like next week, well, <laughs> probably probably later today for us, but next week for the audience, like we're going to be talking about The Star, which is an Arthur C. Clarke short story that we wanted to really kind of like quickly, you know, kind of compare and contrast to this one in a short episode, in a short episode. Um, and in particular, that piece of like how navel gazy and like personal everything is in this book it was something that was an interesting contrast with the star and i'm, I'm, I'm gonna look forward to talking about like sidebar this now for that episode because i i wanted to call that out before we talk about it um mm-hmm. i do think i actually wanted to um kind of kind of go in and give my my rant <laughs> at this do point it. um so at the end of of both of our editions, I have the Kindle edition, you have the paperback, but at the end of both of our editions, there's a um a conversation with Mary Doria Russell. And I wanted to read the first answer to the first question, which is the question is about why she chose to write a, a speculative novel. Um and here here's her answer. The idea came to me in the summer of 1992 as we were celebrating the 500th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the New World. There was a great deal of historical revisionism going on as we examined the mistakes made by Europeans when they first encountered foreign cultures in the Americas and elsewhere. It seemed unfair to me for people living at the end of the 20th century to hold those explorers and missionaries to standards of sophistication and tolerance that we hardly even manage today. I wanted to show how very difficult first contact would be, even with the benefit of hindsight. That's when I decided to write a story about that put modern, sophisticated, resourceful, well-educated, and well-meaning people in the same position as those early explorers and missionaries, a position of radical ignorance." Um, she goes on to talk a little bit more, but that's the stuff I wanted to talk about because fuck everything about that. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm so like, that made me so mad. I'm, I'm like maxing out my, my headphone levels right now. Apologies to everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. That, that, you know, I, it made me really glad that in our pre-read, we had talked a little bit about like 1491 and one long winter yeah. count and these other, these kind of like, you know, yeah. the fact that like Bartolome de las Casas, et cetera. Right, right. Um, River of Darkness, that, there, that there, there are all of these like accounts, like firsthand accounts, both by Jesuits as well as by conquistadors and by explorers, as well as by Native Americans about the like horrors that Columbus and the like post-Columbian trade like visited on the Americas. And it's not a joke like that. Like that, that's thing. Number one is it's it's not a joke. It's not revisionism. I, I have a whole thing about like 
the idea that because we learn more about a person, we shouldn't like update our thoughts about that person. The idea that we shouldn't do history as an academic study of trying to learn more about the past because changing our ideas about a person over time is revisionism. I hate that. I, it's this like purely reactionary view of the way like academic history works. And I think it's it's bad praxis. <laughs> it's bad theory and it's bad praxis. And we shouldn't do that. Like historical revisionism for me as a phrase is always this kind of like, OK, I should be thinking more deeply about this. And the person who's talking about it is thinking about it clearly. Um, so, I agree completely. So that's piece I mean, I think, one. you know, look at what she's literally saying. Well, no. Let, and let, so let, let me get into yeah. piece number okay. two, which is the idea of um, the mistakes made by the Europeans. This is the other piece here is the idea that the Europeans when they uh, the the mistakes made by them a place of radical ignorance um holding those explorers and missionaries to standards of sophistication and tolerance that we hardly manage today um as well as the idea that the book puts the explorers in the book in the same position that Columbus was in like let's be really clear here Columbus came to the New World, one, not thinking it was the New World. He thought it was India, obviously, but everyone after him understood what was going on. Like, like we learned that really quickly. So, like, we came to the New World with an economic incentive and an extractive economic incentive. Like, the whole point of Europe coming to the New World was to extract as much wealth, usually in the form of golden spices. But eventually we realized there wasn't a lot of golden spices, but there's other things that, that can make us wealthy back to Europe, right? It was extractive. The idea was that the people there don't matter. Their wealth doesn't matter to them. We should be able to steal that wealth and like bring it back for ourselves. That was baked into the mission from the beginning in a way that like there was no economic incentive in what the explorers in the Sparrow are doing whatsoever. There's no there's no thought of like, we're going there to trade with Rakat. We're going there to take stuff from Rakat. We will get rich if we go to Rakat. There's never any consideration of that at all. Whereas the whole way that Columbus was able to like make his pitch to the Queen Isabella of Spain was that you will get rich based on what I find for you. If you and, give me these ships, I will, get rich. Yeah. I will make you rich. And I'll get rich in the process, but his pitch to her was, I will make you rich. I will give the crown more resources than it can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and like clearly that like if you don't start with that premise, you are not putting the characters in the same place. And also that is not a premise of radical ignorance. That is a premise of of like greed. It is a premise of like, right, like the mistakes, quote unquote, that Columbus made of like enslaving people, killing them of like be, you know, like taking out their eyes and cutting off their hands if they didn't bring him enough gold. Those weren't mistakes. Those were like calculated decisions designed to extract wealth from a people. Yeah. And they were purposefully cruel in a way that is terrible i think and would have been terrible to like you know people back then too for that matter not that that's necessarily relevant right i mean so basically she's making this implicit comparison but she she basically is suggesting that her characters in this book and their mission is like what columbus really would would have been like right which is so offensive I mean, it's just like beyond offensive. It's, it's wrong. It's incorrect. In it is factually yeah. incorrect. Yeah. It's factually incorrect across like it's a also hugely offensive. Like also fuck everything about it's it. So, like. It's so offensive. It's <laughs> offensive. It's offensive because it's wrong and that's offensive. But it's also offensive because like she seems to be suggesting that 
everybody who is interested, like you said, Adrian, everybody who's interested in understanding more about Columbus's motivations beyond the like, you know, sketch that you might get from a nationalist preschool textbook or whatever, is somehow complicit in this uh, kind of uh, like cruel twisting of his motivations. Mm -hmm. Like he was actually this innocent, you know, who like, you know, ignorant, almost almost, ignorant. Yeah. He was this, he was this sort of like regular guy who like probably meant well and like, you know, randomly found himself in a weird position or something. He was an explorer. He discovered the round earth, whatever. Yeah. And none of that is true. No, nothing. (laughs) Absolutely. Like not a single one of those facts is true. (laughs) He was a mercenary who came to loot and plunder and successfully did so. And it's only because he was like less educated than a lot of people of his time that he was dumb enough to think that he could get like all the way like around the (laughs) that he he would get to the indies right by going west people knew the earth was as large as it is and they knew that it was round and columbus thought that it was round but much smaller than it actually was and that's why he thought he could get to india by sailing west from spain which like if the earth, even if the new world wasn't there, he would have never gotten there because there is like half of a planet between Spain and India on that side of the world. And he thought there was like a quarter of a planet between Spain and India on that side of the world because he right. didn't understand like simple math. math. Yeah. But a so lot of math, other people yeah. did. Yeah, that's right. The math uh, that allows you to calculate, like the there's very good ancient Greek math that allows you to calculate the size of the Earth to a, a very good degree of accuracy. Um, and this math was known, you know, before Julius Caesar was alive. It was known in like the second century BC. Uh, so, like, I don't know. It's every single thing about what she said is wrong, and it just reveals that she has a lot of assumptions about the world that are. Right. way off. And I think I think there's also this hidden assumption in there which is, you know, is this thing we've complained about in the book which is that like ignorance is somehow an excuse. Right. Right. In fact, ignorance is even a a virtue to a degree. I I would argue That's that the really book kind me, of yeah. like makes this argument implicitly that ignorance is a virtue and like obviously that's not the case. Or at least obviously to me yeah. that's not the case. Ignorance is bad. You should attempt not to be ignorant and when you find yourself having been ignorant you should do your best to change that yeah i mean uh, you know ignorance is is something that happens um you know it, it, it like it's not necessarily it may or may not be your fault if you're ignorant about something but it's certainly true that you should be aware you should try to be self-aware about your level of ignorance and do not strive to be ignorant. Yeah. Do not celebrate your own ignorant approach to something. Do not ex- because, celebrate other people's previous ignorance. Right. Because if you do that, you will, bad things will result and you will be an ass. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think the other thing under this theme of colonialism that is really worth like teasing apart here is that Bear, bear with me a second. Um, is this kind of like white savior complex that Sophia is given um, where where she is the end of the book, the the Runa, 
the the prey species revolt because she gives them the idea that that is a thing that is possible and can exist in the world. She like brings forth the idea of revolt into their mind. And so they do. Um, And so there's there's this argument being made that, you know, like obviously like they're enslaved, they are bred, they are like used for meat, um, even though they are sentient creatures by the predator species. Like obviously it's a bad situation that they're in. Um, It's one that goes beyond slavery and beyond serfdom to domestication. Um, And. So Sophia frees them from that slavery. She 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 creates the revolt that happens. So there's the argument being made that, you know, somehow by humans coming to this planet, like a better world is getting created. And viewed in context of these comments about Columbus and European and beyond Columbus, just Europeans coming to the new world. Right. Like both both through accident and through like purposefulness. The native inhabitants of the Americas were slaughtered in like massive degrees. Like the, the new world was more populated than Europe when the Europeans came here and we killed something like all, but like 10% of the inhabitants within the first couple of hundred years. And by now we've, you know, killed all, but like, like percentages of them. Um, and, and it, this still matters today. Like native Americans today are treated very poorly. They have the highest suicide rate of any like group in America. They have the highest, um, being killed by police rate (laughs) of any group by America. Um, they, you know, in a lot of parts of America, there was like this very extreme segregation that happened where we gave them a parcel of land and said, you must live there and can't live anywhere else. Um, and their extreme poverty. Um, I can't say more poverty than any other group. I don't know that for a fact, but it's very, very bad. Um, a lot of alcoholism um, and a lot of these sort of like situations that are like, you know, cause still today um, in the Native American communities around the U.S. Um, that 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 is a direct result of like Europeans having come here and treated them as property and as like a people to extract wealth from. Yeah, it's so it's so fashionable to, you know, not to be uh, not to get too far away from the book, but like it's so fashionable for um, people to care a great deal about those who suffer, who are far away, Um, you know, uh, but uh, there's so much suffering that is a direct result of our ancestors like making specific cruel decisions mm-hmm. um, that that we just live with just all around us right constantly um, it, it's it's not somehow an academic debate about revisionism at like on some level this is like these are just people who are dying and suffering right now right <laughs> you know right and and we, and we should care about that. like I, I believe strongly yeah. that we should care about that um, yeah and, and the idea and I grew the, up in a place yeah. with with a lot of right like Native Americans. I mean Alaskan natives in particular, but like this this was a thing that I saw a lot of as a kid and didn't really like know how to understand because our school still like you know the school that I was growing up in I was taught that like Columbus was a hero and that you know Squanto was some friendly Indian helper which is not true <laughs> like you know <laughs> like all these stories like rob agency of the Native Americans and and that's that's bad and and this story goes to like further that same idea through the metaphor that it's building where the Native Americans are an alien species that needs to be saved 
Yeah. And a bunch of, you know, people and the Europeans are are radically ignorant and and like in a state of grace due to that ignorance. Right, right, right. A bunch of people who we are told are well-meaning show up knowing absolutely nothing about what's going on and like bumble their way into a kind of like relationship with some of these aliens and, you know, just sort of expect everything to turn out all right. As though their very presence won't be a major uh, change to this alien world. I'll tell you one thing that really bothered me. Like, it's one thing if these characters are ignorant. It really is. So long as the author is, like, somehow self-aware of this character ignorance. Mm -hmm. But, like, one thing that happens specifically, there's a line where... Mark, so Mark is a character who's a a, a biologist, among other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a line somewhere where they like they're contemplating whether or not to set up a garden. And they're like, well, what if some of our plants are an invasive species? Something that they have not previously considered, by the way, even though they've like they, they've like introduced all the bacteria, like a bunch of bacteria by their very presence, and they've introduced right. themselves and they've like they've made an environmental change to this planet by arriving, but they've right. not previously mentioned that fact. So then one well, of the they've characters- taken no precaution. I mean, there's never a question yes. of will they land or not. Of course they will. Yeah. They're there. Yeah. It's theirs right. to land on. Exactly. Exactly. They never ask permission. It never occurs to them to ask permission. <laughs> right. right? That, they know these people have radio. Right. Right. They just they know they they're figure, intelligent. Right. They figure, oh, yeah, well, whatever. We'll show up. It doesn't matter. Right. You know, we're like well-meaning. That's enough. Um, but so anyway, so they it's ask It's actually Mark, interesting that there's no consent given for them to come to the planet. I never even considered that, but that's a, that's it, a great well, point. It also never fucking occurs to them to even think about asking, right. which is really interesting yeah right <laughs> well, i mean it never occurred to me which is also really interesting i'm like no I totally you're absolutely right yeah but um so anyway so they ask mark they're finally like considering like a more intensive uh, w- uh method of uh having their like brought organisms interact with local organisms i.e like a kind of like more systematic gardening so they ask the biologist like you know what about this? Like, should we do this? And he's like, eh, all of our species will just die out if we stop tending the garden. It's fine. It's like two lines. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be fucking kidding me. How do you know that? Like, right. like, well, like I think how are you, how are you so blasé about this question, which is like very serious? I think like, that was designed, like supposedly they had brought GMO crops that like could only be fertilized by humans. Yeah, was what I read that as. Right, I I know that's he's very blasé about it. He just like assumes that that's like, and it's just like. Well, it's written as like it's okay. The characters know, like like it's written as like an apology for the characters. Right, it's like it's basically it's like it's dealt with in two lines because it's like the thing that bothers me is like this isn't even a serious question. Right, like right, right, we're not even going to spend book time on this. Like whatever, I will wave my hand at that for like a split second, and that's enough because that's not what's really important here. What's really important is these characters' emotional relationships to each other and their like theology, not the like billions of lives that might be affected by these like random tiny decisions that they make. Right. Emilio's relationship with God is obviously way more important than whatever like countless deaths could potentially result from the tiny decisions that are made every day of this mission. Yeah, this is really part of what I'm going to bring up when we talk about the star in particular is this. <laughs> is this. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think I think again, like, I, I hate to keep bringing it back to, to well, no, I don't. I'm 
very happy to keep bringing it back to to the like what actually happened in our history because that's exactly what Mary Doria Russell wants us to do explicitly she told us that um, but she doesn't do it right like <laughs> right. she doesn't actually ever tie it into earth history which well, totally no, no, boggles my mind but the, but the thing here is that like you know in reality like the the population of the americas was not like not decimated but but non-decimated or whatever the like, right word would be right like like well, it's like, like literally like, decimated like actually a tenth of them were survived right like <laughs> the opposite of decimated decimated is one tenth is killed here it's at one tenth survived due to plague alone yes, yes, yes. due to the accident of us bringing european diseases to the americas Right. Like that, that is a large chunk of what killed so many Native Americans. And the idea that we have of the Native American as like a nomadic tribal people was not true before Columbus came to the Americas. That was like them having survived a zombie apocalypse and turning into like wandering, like post civilization, like post collapse roves of people before that. There were settlements, there were cities, right. there were cities in the Americas, even in North America, bigger than any city in Europe. It's like, imagine if like the, if, if there had been a nuclear war and America had won, and then we had sent some like teams to the husk of Russia, right. you know, the irradiated like remains of Russia. Right. And these teams had uncovered like roving bands of humans you know, yep. and they had decided on uncovering these roving bands of humans. Oh, that's what Russians wow. have always been. Russian society must be composed of roving bands. Yep. I mean, yeah, exactly. How strange. <laughs> exactly. This doesn't accord with what we learned in our textbook. <laughs> the textbook must be wrong. You know, like, yeah, no, it's exactly it. I mean, the the one piece is that we didn't have a textbook. Like, we hadn't actually yes, visited North America for the most part, and like yes, most yes. of what we know now comes from. Both the accounts of the Native Americans themselves, as well as you know, archaeological evidence. So, so the idea, so the idea yeah. that like these characters in this book, right, who are like intelligent, well-educated people living like literally right now, like in the twenty teens, mm-hmm. you know, are gonna like do a mission to a new world, and they're not even going to take seriously. I believe they do deal with it in like one or two lines, the idea of bacteria or, or yeah, whatever, but, but they not, don't take it seriously. It's right? not taken seriously by the book. This. This incredible holocaust that was visited upon like actual humans and actual Mm -hmm. human history is like a kind of, you know, well, because the book is an apology for that holocaust. The book is an argument that that holocaust was to some extent justified. I see that's uh, yeah, that's where you lose. Justified is the wrong word, but but it's, it's explicitly that that holocaust is understandable. I I mean, I think her point is that it's. Yeah, it's 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 um it's an accident. I think I think she would say that like, you know, the total. I wanted to show how very difficult first contact would be, even with the benefit of hindsight. Right. It seemed unfair to me for people living at the end of the 20th century to hold those explorers and missionaries to standards of tolerance that we hardly manage today. Right. I think she she thinks basically that it's an accident, like what happened to the Native Americans. Um. And that's totally wrong. <laughs> right. It was, it was designed. And I even, mean, like, you know, even the stuff that nobody... like, was an accident was later weaponized against them. Like once we and learned like, that, like, oh, they are susceptible to these diseases, we used it to kill more of them. Yeah. Like they were killed too quickly for us to do that, to kill them 
intentionally mostly, but like every opportunity Europeans had. <laughs> we did as much as we could. Yeah. And the idea that like, like you said, I mean, like this concept that revisionism is bad, that like, oh yeah, when, you know, you get an edit, you shouldn't revise. Yeah. Revising is bad. That's a bad word. No, like you've got to be kidding me. Like we hopefully have learned something from, th- like if we don't learn from the things that happen that are bad, then we will never get better at anything. <laughs> yeah yeah like the, these characters are, are like i it just boggles my mind that they like the characters undertaking this mission you know they don't even deal with historical jesuit missions to other cultures that's another thing no, I wanted to bring no. Up. for for all that this book is like a metaphor like an allegory for like things that actually happened on earth the characters don't act i mean like again she says like you know I, i'm gonna pull up the exact quote here um because i think it's important here um even with the benefit of hindsight, you know, well-meaning, educated, sophisticated people in the position of those early explorers and missionaries, but they don't like, there's no hindsight. They don't ever look behind. They don't ever they don't. look to the past. There, are, There's a huge um, corpus of literature about and by uh, Jesuit missionaries that went to different parts of the world. Um, the stuff that I'm most familiar with deals with China. Um, it's incredible. First of all, I mean, there's an, a really uh, an unflattering contrast uh, between the attitude and uh, um, sophistication of the Jesuit missionaries in China who actually went there like, you know, hundreds of years ago, say in the 1500s or 1600s, and the characters in this book. Mm-hmm. If you compare the actions of Matteo Ricci to Emilio Sandoz, Emilio Sandoz does not end up looking like a well-meaning, sophisticated modern person. He ends up looking like a fucking idiot. (laughs) I mean, they're fools (laughs) and not holy fools. No, right. We're supposed to think he's some kind of holy fool, but he's just he's just a fool. He's just a fool. Like (laughs) all of them, all of them together, individually and as a team, are fools. Yeah. And there's another thing I wanted to bring up, another yeah. quote from the inter- interview, uh, yeah. actually, um, that that actually I, I that made an impression on me when I read the interview. Um, uh, so she says, so this is Mary Doria Russell um, responding to a question. She is asked, are any of your characters based on real people? Mm. And she goes, yeah, some of them are. Anne and George share a biography with my husband and me within certain limitations. Anne was willing to go to another planet and I won't even go camping. That is interesting to me. And that actually, I I think it's worth saying, nevertheless, she speaks fairly clearly in my voice to the point I was making earlier. Yeah. yeah, Oh yeah, of course. Yes. The the next sentence is that. And, and yes, it's totally your, your, your point is well taken. Um, But like, she may or may not have done field work. I'm not sure. Um, she certainly was a, an anthropologist, um, right. well-credentialed anthropologist. But the impression I get from her is that she's somebody who is not interested in uh, the like nitty-gritty details of uh, of like uh, these sort of like difficult field expeditions mm-hmm. of the, of this type. Or of, of like a like a long term trip of any kind, and that's okay. You can write a book, like you know, you can write a book about a long term trip without being interested in that. If if that's not what you want your book to be about, there's a way to do that. There are multiple ways to do that. Um, but what you probably won't be super successful at is having you know critical elements of your book depend on nitty gritty details that you don't deal with well. Mm-hmm. That's not going to work. You 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 got to deal with them well if you're going to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, I was just really struck by that because a lot of things about the book kind of are, you know, seem more like I can understand better why she would write things a certain the way that she has. If I if I think about her as somebody who is not interested in the field and is only interested and is and is interested in sitting back at the dinner yeah. party and talking about theology. Right. And um, it, it might be true that she wasn't. A, I, I could be misremembering that part of her biography. I know that. She well, either way, like, you know. Yeah. I mean, even if she has done. But she yeah. might not have actually been in the field. It might have been like. But but work. even if she has, uh, the, the, I think the point stands, even if she has worked in the field. Right. I mean, it's, it's just no, like, if I she's agree. not interested in that, then yeah. It's just, it, it struck me because it's like where her interests are. It, it, it reveal it sort of highlights where her interests are in a way that accords with the way that, where they seem to be best in the book. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. I think I'm I'm ready to move on from. Yeah, that's a lot of ranting. Yeah, I mean, I think we were both angry, really angry. I was really angry about it, and like, I I, I think it's important to to you know, like call it out. It is. It's really upsetting. upsetting. Especially given I think that this is a thing that both you and I, like, this is a topic you and I care about a lot and have read a lot about, and you know, like, have personal connections to, and so like, it's. Uh, for for me, it was like like I got to the end and I really didn't like the climax. Like you said, the climax didn't work to me. And I finished the book and I was like, ah, I guess I, I you know, I don't think I actually liked the book. I was a little bit surprised. I don't think I liked that book. And then I read that. You know, that's that's immediately after the book ends. Like, that's the first thing that appears is this like, you know, like interview. And that's the very first question in the interview. And so it's like I finished the book. Hmm, I don't really think I like it. Click a button. Oh, yeah. I thought Christopher Columbus was fine. And I didn't like the historical revisionism. Uh, fuck you. I hate this book. <laughs> yeah. It was like my response was just it, so strong. It is worth saying, you know, I think if if you want there is a hey, should we me, talk about a- good books about this topic um, yeah well well yeah I, I do want to do that also i was thinking about that too but uh, just just briefly there is something to be said for if you are interested in trying to separate the work of fiction from the author and to treat it like differently than the way we are treating it we are we are mm-hmm. we are com- we are mm-hmm. combining our our our, our uh, criticism of both into one thing if you are interested in in not doing that um that's a different approach you could take i don't i think there's merit to that approach it's not like the only kind of criticism to do is is the kind that involves a uh, dealing with the author's intent. Um, that's really hard to do when she explicitly says, nevertheless, and speaks yeah, very yeah, yeah. clearly in my voice. I, like I, I, I try to actually take that approach in most books, but this is a book that I, I would yeah. argue you can't take that approach with. Yeah. I mean, or at it's, least it's much harder it's, to, it's a much higher burden to doing. So. I think, you know, it, it's, there's this classic problem of authorial intent. Mm hmm you know, and the, the level of interaction Mm -hmm. that one thinks that should have with a work. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a problem that in some cases is very, uh, top of mind. Like in this case, in other cases, it's maybe, you know, more like more subtle, like, you know, thinking about the relationship between Nazism and Wagner is a very, it's a, it's a more subtle thing. Definitely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Jew and a fan of Wagner and I find that to be a, a complicated and, uh, Mm -hmm. and tough, tough conversation sometimes. Um, you know, but then, you know, Wagner versus Heidegger is a whole different thing. Heidegger was a Nazi. He was a Nazi. And his philosophy, uh, is not the same as Nazism. 
and so like you know and it's clearly very influential in its own right in a way like but like the way that we think about heidegger you know should we should we talk about his nazism i think we definitely should we have to but like how does that interact with our discussion of his work in a particular way like ah it's tough it's tough it depends you know right i i know read kierkegaard instead (laughs) <laughs> that's my answer <laughs> um, so um you know speaking I, I think actually that might be a decent segue into talking about like sophia and judaism in the book generally so um we had a character we had a character jesus um sorry we had a a, a listener we did have a character jesus yeah. actually <laughs> yeah i'm a character jesus um we had a reader reach out to us over email and uh, he said something really interesting and I wanted to read it to you and, and get your thoughts on it. Um, and so Ooh. this is Cameron who emailed us. Um, I read The Sparrow a couple years back and after I finished reading it, I was struck by how Jewish the book was. I know most of the characters in the book are Catholic, but as you mentioned in the pre-read, Doria herself is a Jewish convert and after finishing it, it seemed to me that thematically the book was significantly more Jewish than Catholic, if I'm allowed to make such a sweeping generalization. Specifically, the book's take on suffering and the problem of evil seemed to be more informed by Jewish sensibilities than Catholic ones. And um, I, I, as someone who, you know, was raised neither Catholic nor Jewish, like don't have a whole ton to say on this. And I was kind of curious about your take on it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not an expert in theology, um, but I think that's a really interesting. That's a really interesting thing to think about. Um, I, uh, I sort of wasn't thinking as I was, I was not thinking about the author's religion as I was reading this book. Um, I thought mostly about Catholicism during the parts when they were talking about Catholicism and then, you know, Judaism during the parts that they were talking about that, which is, you know, the Soviet parts. Um, I do think it's really interesting though. It's a good point. I mean, there's something to that. Um, in particular, the idea that you know in a way it's almost like in a way you could think of this book as uh a you know uh, a person who's like new to catholicism struggling with a more jewish morality hmm. you know like this is classic there's this classic idea that someone is new to catholicism yeah yeah i mean you could think of it that way i mean she's not new to catholicism when she wrote this book but like but but it's like you know, a lot of the book revolves around the, Emilio's struggles with his faith. Yeah. In the face of this horrific tragedy. Um, and uh, the morality of the book, of the world, of the events, you know, of a lot of the things, you know, it seems to be the case that we're meant to believe that, like, uh, a lot of the characters in the book seem to have the view that... Uh, Terrible things happen. God won't protect you from terrible stuff. Terrible stuff will just happen. Mm-hmm. A thing that God does is not protect you from horrible stuff. That's not like a way to think about how God works. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems like the thing that's sort of Jewish to me almost. It, you know, it depends on what kind of Judaism we're talking about. It depends on the source that we're talking about. There's plenty of, you know, there's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of Jewish sources that, that you know, where... God takes a more active role in defending people, but there's also a very there's a very strong Jewish tradition of uh, 
kind of associated with the Enlightenment, with Spinoza, um, of, you know, a more distant God who does not, who will not protect you from things. And this also relates to the Holocaust, obviously. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, experience of a lot of Jewish people in the last hundred years has been terrible. And in a way that has forced a lot of Jewish people, even those who didn't live through it, but who just experience it, you know, vicariously or indirectly to deal with these events, you know, and to have them be a part of our lives, even though, you know, even though, you know, even though like for me, for example, my life is very far removed from the Holocaust and has been my entire life. I've had a very fortunate life. Um, but I met people as a child with tattoos you know, and I remember, you know, my father pointing that out to me as a child. I mean, that's like, I don't know if non-Jews ever do that, but I think a lot of Jews have had that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, a lot, a lot. I never did as a kid. I, and, and, you know, part of this comes from coming from a town that had, I think, like two Jewish families or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but yeah, I, I, I you know, never... Yeah, I, I don't. So dealing, I don't think that's yeah. a not a thing that like non-Jews experience as much as Jews do. Yeah, I w- I wouldn't know, but uh, definitely it's the case that you know for for a lot of Jewish people, uh, the concept of horrific world-ending tragedy is is more near to hand and more top of mind. Um, and and you know the 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 idea of being uh, a devoted uh, religious person. Um, you know, maybe uh, this is, this is just like maybe opening up too much of a can of worms. Cause like I said, I'm not an expert in theology, but from my, you know, amateur, you know, random sort of position, one way that occurred to me to think about it might be that, um, there's a classic Jewish position, you know, in, in like, um, Sorry, in the in uh, there's a classic Jewish position in in the stories of um, uh, Sholem Aleichem, for example, the short stories like you know Fiddler on the Roof is based on one of those, for example. There's stories about life in the shtetl, you know, or in um, or in uh, uh, a lot of Jewish writings from the 19th century and before from Eastern Europe. Um, a lot of terrible stuff happens, and. Uh, you're not expected to have an emotional, you know, some people have an emotional crisis of faith, but um, in general, I think Job, Job, the story of Job is, is a, is a, is a Mm -hmm. common way to understand terrible things happening. Yeah. They, they just happen and you just have to deal. Right. And that's just the way it is. You know, yeah, that's <laughs> like, that's interesting, actually, because I mean, Job was actually a, I would say, a foundational story when I was growing up as well. Like we we mm. we look to Job a lot of this idea of like just because something bad is happening to you doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that like you won't get rewarded. And even if you don't get rewarded, like there's not you know, it doesn't mean there's not an afterlife. You know, there's like like all of the, <laughs> like like just because bad material things are happening doesn't mean that like theology is wrong. It's sort of like the lesson that we would take from that. 
Well, it's so funny that you say that. All the rest of the stuff you just said is not part of what I'm talking about. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> it's like all the like, oh, you won't still get rewarded. There's no talk about rewards. No, sorry. sorry. The, like, the, the reward is is specifically in, in Christianity, like heaven here. Right, right, right. I mean. exactly. Not material No, reward. I know. I know. I know. I, I think I, I know what you mean, but there's that's what I mean, too. Okay, like there's okay. no talk. There's no talk. It's like you're not there's there's not a lot of, you know, heaven going on here. It's just like <laughs> fair, you, fair. you got a deal. Yeah. Like you just you just got to That's just how it is. Yeah. Like it's not it's not because you're going to get this. It's just like you got it. Yeah. And I think that is the like <laughs> specific like Christian twist on a lot of the like stories that otherwise would comprise the Torah is that this kind of, there's this kind of dangling of like heaven over all of it. Of, like you go through it because at the end of the day you want to like, you know, seeing who Hosanna sat next to Jesus or whatever. Right. And there's, you know, there's, there's, there's I remember messi- that point as a kid when I like really like, like heaven went from being like abstract to like reading what like the Bible described heaven as and being like, <laughs> I don't want that. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds boring. I don't want that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say there, there's a, there's definitely like a messianic thinking in Judaism too. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that there isn't, mm-hmm. it's actually quite important in Judaism, especially nowadays when, uh, so when like, um, ultra-Orthodox Jewish people have so much power in Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a whole can of worms. Anyway. Yeah. uh, I do not want to open. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I I think the other piece to, to, you know, we wanted to, you or you wanted rather to talk a little bit about Sophia's just character, like, you know, aside from her like explicit Judaism, but like kind of the way that her character was handled in the book. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, she's the most interesting character in the book. I, um, I follow, uh, so there's a, a very famous and awesome sci-fi author named Joe Walton, mm-hmm. who I think has she written stuff that's not sci-fi too? Probably. Yeah. Like, uh, among others is like not really sci-fi or is it? I think I it's know. all speculative. I, I don't know if it yeah. fits under the like sci-fi category necessarily, but anyway, Joe Walton is awesome. She's written a lot. One of the things she's done is a lot of really good, uh, criticism. criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah like super good and it's a lot of it's online for free you can find it if you google for it just it's like mostly pick a book. tour.com right that's right that's right but also other places if you just literally pick a book and google like joe walton and that book you'll get like <laughs> awesome stuff yeah um and she collected some of this some of her tour criticism into a physical book that she published oh cool um a little, little while ago um it's it's uh it's great so she um did not like the sparrow Mm -hmm. uh she i think agreed with she had the she said this stuff before we did but like we agree with a lot of stuff that she's she's said about uh this book right and i hadn't read Um, any of her criticism about it i'd read one sentence of criticism about the book before i read the book and that was even after i'd read most of the book I used to be clear that like we're not just like having read her stuff and trying to like parrot it and like call yeah, it her exactly own. correct. I did. I read the book and formulated an opinion before I read what right, Joe Walton wrote right. about it. <laughs> um, I just am a fan of hers. Uh, Agreed. Me too. Just to be clear. Yeah. 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 Um, so Joe Walton, I this one idea though I got from Joe Walton specifically, and that's the idea that um, uh, Sophia. Um, is the most well-developed character in this book. Uh, she's the only character in this book. Well, I guess you could argue that Emilio sort of has his trauma recovery. But Sophia is the 
really the only character in the book who we actually see step by step going through some kind of transition, some kind of change. Like a character arc. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, I think I think it would be hard to argue that we don't see that for Emilio as well. I guess that's but true. I, think I guess that, that's true. I, I get I get what you're going with here. Though. His arc, Emilio's arc, is less interesting to me because um, it's not. I mean, his internal conflict is a lot of what the book centers around, but I don't think his internal conflict is very good compared to hers. I mean, mm-hmm. Sophia's internal conflict is is sort of like um, more complicated and subtle. Emilio's is basically like, I want to love God, but evil things happen. It's the classic <laughs> problem of evil stuff. Yeah. Like, I mean, not just um, evil he, things happen, but evil things happened to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrible stuff happened to him, but he wants to love God and he wants to like find a way to live with trauma. So basically he's going through trauma recovery. Right. And and so- Sophia, though, is doing something very similar. I mean, she was insanely traumatized as a child. Mm-hmm. She has to go through trauma recovery, too. But it happens in a much more uh, subtle and sophisticated way. I mean, up to a you know, point. We, then there's a point. Up to at a which point. It, yeah, like, there's a lot of really problems. Poorly. There's a lot of problems with it, and I find that very, very frustrating. She's also more interesting, or at least as interesting, maybe more interesting as a as a person than Emilio. Emilio oh, is, totally. a, is a pretty, She's by far the pretty, most interesting person, and in like backstory yeah. wise. Yeah, and and like it's so it's interesting. I, I I guess I'll put it this way: I wanted more of Sophia throughout the book. I constantly wanted more of her. I wanted to learn more about her. I wanted to. I was really motivated to find out what she was going to do, mm-hmm. like what she wanted and how she would react to stuff. Mm-hmm. Because with all the other characters, it sort of seems like everything is foreordained by whatever we're supposed to think the plot is. But I truly had no idea what was going to happen to Sophia, what she was going to do, what she was going to want. And I was very motivated to find out because she's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's maybe a better, better way to put how I feel about her. Um, the problem, though... Uh, and, 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 you know, credit to Joe Walton, because, like, I think she wrote some smart stuff about Sophia. So the problem, though, is that, like, Sophia is, like, killed off in this incredibly annoying, stupid way. As a result of her having done something that is, like, not clear how in character it is. This is also a point Joe Walton makes. Yeah. Like, like that I totally why, agree with. Why? Sophia is pregnant. And she is thrust into a dangerous situation involving a bunch of armed people, like maybe like having a hair trigger and maybe like going to be killing people. And she's in the middle of it, but she's not necessarily a target. Right. Well, the thing that strikes me about that situation is that she does what Anne would do, not what Sophia would do. But right. Anne has already been killed off, so it's left to the only other female character to why, like, take that action. Why are we meant to believe that Sophia would martyr herself for these aliens when we are not given any sense that Sophia has a close connection with these aliens, A? And the opposite, in fact. I mean, I think she yeah. has like the least interest in them. B, she's pregnant. She has something else to care about. She's obviously, you know... Right. And when I mean, see, we're like told she's in love with Jimmy for what all that's dumb yeah. as that whole thing that's, is. That's stupid. I'm going to get to that. That's stupid. <laughs> okay. D, D, Sophia has a lot of experience in violent, violent situations right. from her childhood. She has proved she has a proven ability to survive in this kind of dangerous situation mm-hmm. by keeping her head down. Right. If we are supposed to believe that she's going to do not that, we need to have a reason. 
literally all the things that we've just been talking about, this death that she, her death and, and this series of events that, you know, leads to it all happens off camera. We are only told about it. Like by Emilio after the by fact. Emilio yeah. after the fact, and it's just it's so over so quickly. It's not explained. It's not delved no. into. It's not given to us moment by moment. It's it just doesn't work. It right. doesn't work at all. Well, I think you know you made a pension pension. You made a point to me off mic um, that there's a point at which Sophia explicitly. What was it that like like she begins purposefully taking on Anne's traits as like part yeah. of her like trauma? And this is where for me, like the whole idea of like her getting over her trauma falls apart. It's like, you know, the final step of like getting over her trauma is to like explicitly just like copy Anne and become more like Anne because Anne is the ideal woman. No, it wasn't it wasn't quite it was like so she starts to when they're on this spaceship on their way to Rakat, um, that's like a period of time during which like she's trying to become more quote unquote normal. She's trying to like interact with the rest of the crew in a more, um, uh, you know, straightforward and like unfiltered way. And at that point on the ship, she starts to mimic Anne in specific gestures and emotional responses to other characters as a way of like drawing herself out and like, cause you know, it's right. presented but, as like, no, but that's what I'm, that's explicitly what I'm arguing is that like, that's the final step in her like post-trauma transformation is getting to the <clears> point <throat> where she can relate to other people in a way that is as equals as opposed to like as a subservient yeah. person who must like guard herself because she is a slave like that. That's the trauma she's getting over there though is ha- having yeah. been a no, slave and now being an equal to others. Yeah, and she yeah, does I that sh- by mimicking Anne. Yes, yes. No, everything you said is, is accurate. I just want to sort of set up this thing. So so she's doing she's doing um she's doing that on the ship. She's mimicking Anne. The thing that I find uh, uh, annoying about that whole setup isn't that she mimics Anne. It's just that the way it's portrayed is a little bit too much like, oh yeah, Anne is obviously the perfect person and yeah. like flawless and whatever. Or at least like Anne is like this wonderful human who like the the author standing character happens to be this incredible emotional uh, uh, have this incredible emotional intelligence and this incredible intelligent intelligence and like blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, and, and like, again, I think that there's also something inherently tied up with like femaleness in all of it. Like like Anne is not just the perfect person. She's specifically like the perfect woman. And like her womanhood and womanness is like an innate part of like what makes her, you know, she she embodies all of these like traditionally Western, like, you know, modern Western female traits of like mothering and nurturing and all of this kind of stuff. And like that's specifically the thing that Sophia like Sophia needs to learn to be like less type A and like less like impressive and more nurturing. Yeah. Yeah, she needs to unwind and be more like a real woman or yeah, something. And exactly. it's super annoying. It's super annoying. It's very annoying. Um, the idea that she would mimic someone who has better emotional responses as a way of getting over like okay, oh, sure. that yeah. general idea I don't have a problem with. It's it's the specifics of like who she's mimicking and what she's right. mimicking that's that's annoying. Well, and I wonder yeah. if part of like this being out of character is that she has, you know, and part of it being like like, like when I read it, I did see it like in in my head i was like wait that should be Anne doing that not sophia like it doesn't make sense for sophia to be like yeah, saving totally. the babies it makes sense for Anne to 
And it's only after you mentioned that thing about her, like, you know, trying to mimic Anne that I realized like, oh, maybe that is like the point. Maybe the point is that she has so fully come around and like, you know, fixed her trauma that she can sacrifice herself for these you know, alien. Babies. I think I think that is meant to be the point, but I don't think it makes any sense. No, it's terrible. It's awful. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It, it's just like it could make sense if we were given a lot more of Sophia, which we're not. And so now we get to like the other. That was my uh, one big problem I have with her uh, portrayal. The other big problem I have is like everything that happens to her and that she does from the from the point where Emilio like decides to not pursue her. Mm. So okay, first of all, mm-hmm. why is it that Emilio is the one making this decision? Like we are meant to believe that Emilio is the one who decides which man Sophia will end up with. There's, him or Jimmy. This book like, has like a surprisingly big problem with like male characters having agency over female characters they and and it's weird it it is i I mean it's weird (laughs) it's really weird like okay so that's a silly dumb terrible thing right like emilio is the one that decides this like that's weird and crazy it makes no sense you know i guess it's kind of presented as like emilio having to finally decide for himself that he's going to like be faithful to the faith and yeah yeah and like that aspect of it works it's this other aspect that doesn't right and that you know one big piece of the other thing is like okay so emilio has decided he's not going to make himself available to sophia there's this budding connection between them but emilio is going to shut it down he's going to say no Mm -hmm. okay cool what does sophia do I mean, from then on, we don't really get any of her like making choices or doing things or having character development or having any kind of internal monologue or Mm -hmm. doing anything. What we get is, oh, well, obviously she's just going to get with Jimmy now and become uh, the same as Anne. Yeah. Except that she's short, which is like, like Jimmy's tall and she's short. Those are like important facts. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Why does she get with Jimmy? Does she like Jimmy? We don't even get any of them interacting. We, we get Jimmy no. having the hots for her, which is, okay, whatever. He's a 20-something man. He has the hots for a, a woman who's supposed right. to be attractive. I, I can believe that. That's believable. But, like, well, like we, there's I mean, nothing said, else. Like, she's an appealing character. She's written to be appealing, and, and, and she yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, I, Like, that's believable. Yeah. But there's, like, no relationship there. No. We're not given their relationship at all. No. And then we just are expected to believe, oh, oh, yeah. Meanwhile, like at the same time, we're not giving their relationship. We are given these other relationships. And so it feels really arbitrary which relationships we're given and which we aren't, which pieces of each relationship we're given and which pieces we aren't. And then we end up after a while, we end up with them just like getting together. Jimmy and um, Sophia are together now. Okay, great. And and then we're not giving anything more. They're they're together. Like literally, the last thing that happens to them before they die is they get to get they get together. Like the last important character beat that they have is that they they like are lying together and like she admits her childhood trauma to him. And it's like, why is she admitting this to him? Like, did they even like each other? When did that happen? It's so fast and and unexplained. It's just very and, and weird. Like, yeah, I mean, there's this whole like you know kind of like it's told not shown. Yeah, Yeah, it's a big part of the problem kind of at the end. Um, I do want to apologize to our listeners. My downstairs neighbor's dog is barking a lot. I don't know if it's going to be like audible, but I I can hear it. So I think it will be. (laughs) (laughs) I I would like to apologize because I feel like I've been yelling a lot. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the levels on this are going to we're going to have to I'm going to have to do some work on that. (laughs) Oh, jeez. 
That's my bad. I just, <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I've just been yelling. Um, so. At this point, we've been going, you know, we'll edit it down, but like we, we've been talking for two hours. Do we, um, like what, what other things do we want to get to before we kind of like put a nice little bow on it and wrap it up and, and talk about the next we, bit? I think we should do the aliens. Yeah, I actually, I would rather talk about non-traditional families because okay. this is actually something that we thought <clears throat> worked kind of well. Oh, I forgot about that. And yeah, I, yeah, I would I actually like to yeah. end on a, po- like we've been yelling a lot and ending on a positive note would be nice because this was the one thing yeah, that, you yeah. know, there were problems with it, but we're like, I, I liked it. I thought it was good. I did too. I did too. So non-traditional families. So the, the idea here is just that um, all of these characters um come together to form a new family made up of each other right um, particularly the like the the main five or six right five particularly and george emilio sophia and jimmy right um and uh right. jd is in there a little bit too yeah he's in there a little bit too and the idea you know is that they all don't really have the stereotypical access to their rest of their real families mm-hmm. their biological families mm-hmm. And they all also aren't like sort of missing something and needing something in some way, or at least wanting something. Um, right. And they and so they glom onto each other and they proactively form a new family unit out of each other. Mm-hmm. And um, I really like that. I like that because the idea of highlighting a non-traditional family structure is a good idea as an idea. It's a real thing. It's a cool thing. And mm-hmm. it happens and it's worth acknowledging. Sorry about that. So it's a cool thing and it is worth acknowledging um and also i think that you know she pulls it off pretty well um mary dory russell uh, writes it pretty well it yeah. makes sense to me I, bu- I buy it that seems to be one of the more like kind of um i kind of hate to use this word but like real aspects of like the characters like it's like this the believable piece in a lot of ways is the ways in which they like form familial connections with each other and it also you know, actually, we can kind of talk about this and the aliens together, I'm realizing. Because one of the interesting things about the aliens that we spend the most amount of time with is they also have, like, you know, non-human style, like, uh, non-traditional, let's say, in the same kind of way, family structures. And that, like, you know, they live together as a single herd and there's some pair bonding that goes on. But for the most part, like, the children are raised by everyone and everyone lives with everyone. And it's OK if you like, you know. Like they're very physical. They are constantly touching each other and constantly like like they're, you're never not in contact with another one. And so there's this element of just sort of, you know, uh, like like polyamory, not in the sense of like oh, having sex with a lot of different people, but but of um, of like a lot of like physical contact and a lot of love and a lot of, you know, sort of like like this comfort with each other that that they, you know, when the humans go live with them. You know, I kind of buy that they can like get accepted into that culture so easily, even though they're a bunch of like priests, because they have a like emotionally open relationship with each other in a similar way. Like we've seen them build these like emotionally open relationships with each other where, you know, George and Anne are, you know, like they are married and they are only have sex with each other. But they're also like incredibly emotionally open with other people and like non jealous about that fact with each other. Um, you know, Emilio is, is a very like, you know, at the beginning of the novel, like a surprisingly emotionally open person. And I think that's part of like how he does well as a priest is that he like emotes well and he like, you know, accepts people for who they are. And he, you know, is able to like understand the emotional lives of others in a very like personal way. 
Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, I think um, it's it's a good point that the uh, aliens are also like this. Um, and it's really cool. It, it relates also to how they deal with sex. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of celibacy in this book by choice right. among the priests. And they actually talk about it a lot. They talk about why they do it, why they believe in it, mm-hmm. why it makes sense to them. Right. And I did like and that, I thought that it that wasn't was, treated yeah. poor, Like it wasn't treated as like a bad decision. Yeah, no, it was treated very seriously. I I, um, I really like the seriousness and sympathy with which um, the discussions of celibacy and sex are treated. Mm-hmm. I wish that same seriousness had also <laughs> been brought to bear on some other stuff. Right. You know? That's part of probably what's frustrating about this book is that like there are these pieces that are handled so well. I think if the whole book had been like equally bad, I just like wouldn't have liked it and wouldn't have been so angry about it. But given the Mm -hmm. like emotional availability that the book does show the like places where it's lacking become all the more apparent. The beginning of the book is really something, especially for a first novel. I mean, I think the, especially if you, leave out the like future parts if you go only to the like present parts if you made like you take the first hat like up to when they leave on the mission you know or up to when they hear the aliens for the first time the interactions only among the humans are really good they're really good yeah it's really interesting um well, that, you know, that's my, I feel like every novel I've had like kind of a fix for it. Like this might become like a section is like Adrian's fix. <laughs> like how would I as an editor do this? And I, th- and I honestly do think like as an editor, like part of the way I would like help make this book better be- beyond the like kind of ideological problems that it has. And I think the ideology is one that is just like inherently like bad and like can't necessarily be fixed without an utter rewrite of the entire point of the novel. But from a structural level, like that those first parts of them hanging out like work pretty well and a lot of that stuff even on the planet works pretty well and it would be like more of that more of this like you know kind of like emotional intelligence thing and less like you know priestly political machinations that we don't understand and don't matter by the end and not even political machinations. I mean, that's given them too much. Oh, yeah, I don't even know what to call it is the problem. I think it's kind of presented that way, but not actually that. I I, I don't know. I have a, I have a hard yeah. time with that, with especially the first half of the future parts. I don't really know what the point of that was. And I think we could have done away with mo- like we could have had the prologue, had the like before Ricotte stuff and then started flashing back between the two. Yeah. That could be a book. It's Adrian's fix. <laughs> do, 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 do. End of segment. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Matt's fix. All right, <laughs> Matt's fix. Uh, uh, let's see. You know, I want the aliens to have more lasers and uh, less less yeah. uh, talking. Well, realistically, <laughs> no. I would have loved more aliens, especially the like you know cities. Like the stuff yeah. we did get in the city was really cool. Like the the whole like like going out and like getting high and like dream sequence and like you know like their art. Yeah, and that was like, awesome. Like that shit was so cool. And it it yeah, like was like I loved it was it. like pages. It was like we get like eight pages of like amazing alien stuff. In, I also in the liked book. them. I liked uh, I liked them um, tr- doing anthropology. Uh, in mm-hmm. principle, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, w- I, I just wanted a better version of that. Right. I really did. Like, I wanted a better version of them being anthropologists in the field. This was one thing I mentioned off mic was that, um, so when Emilio goes um, and begins, like, learning their language, he is using actual linguistic techniques to do that. And I thought that was kind of cool. Like, Like, there's this field of linguistics that is... How do you learn a language when there are no two people to translate between your language and the language you're trying to learn, right? Like not when you don't understand that language, but there's no one who understands both of those languages. How do you translate between them? Um, And this is like necessary for field linguists who like go out to places where the, you know, like... I hate this word, but uncontacted tribes or that kind of thing. Like go, go to places where there are people whose like language, there's no, you know, kind of corpus or like understanding of how to translate it. Um, and he, he does those things. He does the things of like, you know, trying to kind of logic puzzle out. Like first you have to get them to say sentences and like point to things in the world. And then you have to figure out what of what sounds in those sentences comprise words that's the first question is like, what's a word in this language? Cause that's different in different languages. Um, and I, I really, I really enjoyed those pieces and I wish there were a lot more of that. That's so cool. Will you link a thing? Yeah. I, there's, there's a, there's a video by, um, Daniel Everett, who is a like linguist who's like fairly famous for some other things, but there's a video of him in the course of like an hour and a half lecture learning a new language and demonstrating to the students how he is learning this new language where he's in Minnesota and he like a person who speaks Hmong is brought in and he has to like learn Hmong like with her. And it's amazing. It's so cool. It's very neat because he not only does it, but he also describes what he's doing because it's a lecture for, for, for university. So I'll try to find that video and link to it in the, in the show notes. Anything we describe, I will try to link in the show notes. Yeah. Um, it also reminds me of another thing that was annoying in the interview, uh, in the first question answer, which you already read the beginning of, uh, Mary Doria Russell also says, quote, unfortunately, there's no place on earth today where first contact is possible. You can find MTV, CNN, and McDonald's everywhere you go. The only way to create a first contact story like this was to go off planet, which is not, you know, it's not true. I mean, it's it's like mostly true. I I get where she's going with that. But like to me when I read that, I was like it just it struck me oh she's just not familiar with the you know history of first contact literature and the right on ongoing attempts to make contact with uncontacted groups. Well, the pro- or- the problem is that like these groups that we call uncontacted are not right. They're not yeah, uncontacted really. and they're not a sp- specifically most of the like so-called like uncontacted tribes that you hear about like don't want to be contacted. They know what modernity looks like and they like know what happens when the tribes around them get contacted and they explicitly don't want to be and will kill anyone who comes into their territory in order to protect themselves and to protect their way of life. Like there's a there's an amount of agency that we do not give these that we do not give these people by calling them uncontacted as if it's on us to contact them. That is some good, something they should want and something that like we should do. Yeah. So it just felt to me reading that thing that she said that she's like not aware of, of that. Like she's not aware of this sort of ongoing reality of like humans having to deal with humans interacting with other groups of intelligent beings that that right. maybe you, you're not familiar with it like it's like a, a situation where one group is not 
or both groups are totally ignorant of the other or mostly ignorant of the other. Like that's a situation that is like not that doesn't not happen. It happens still. And it yeah. is also there's, there's also, also a, a lot, certain, a like, lot of literature centric kind of thinking to that idea, though, that like, you know, they're uncontacted because we haven't ta- spoken to them as if like no one has ever spoken to them as if they don't have yeah. their own ideas and haven't spoken of course, to themselves. Of course, of course. But I mean, like she's also unaware of that. I mean, it's like. I it just feels like, like I, I wouldn't actually necessarily read that into there. If anything, like she might, she might be aware of that, and like that's why she's not calling out. To the, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I take more umbrage with the idea that there are like you know, that like contact as, as like an idea. Yeah, I mean, it just to me, it felt like. <sighs> It is interesting. It that felt, she it felt uncurious in this weird yes, way. It felt like uh, she's yeah. not aware of the of the world of this type of story that already exists. Right, right. And I think that, you know, like there's something we spoke about, which is like kind of funny that she never mentions it, which is that, you know, like humans have contacted other species in the past, even right. Like like. Homo yeah. sapiens and Homo neanderthalus have like met each other in the past. And those were like two different sentient species that met and lived together and interbred. And like all non-African humans have neanderthalus genes. And like, right, like there's this whole interesting thing there that is kind of surprising. She never mentions it. You know, I was really surprised that she never mentioned the fact that like there were multiple sentient human species on the this planet at the same time, given that she created another planet with like multiple different human species. And I actually expected there to be some element of like talking about that either in the book or in the interview when we realize that there are multiple species on this planet that are like still alive, given that there's civilization when that's not what happened. Right. Like all the I, other sentient species uh, died yeah. off in, in, in on Earth and there's only one left now doesn't she mention neanderthals in the interview though uh... she mentions them a few times in the book like Anne mentions like some talk of them but not in the con like like it's not that neanderthals aren't mentioned it's that it's not mentioned in the context of like oh earth also had like multiple sentient species at one point like that 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 um 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 parallel is never drawn and is never made clear yeah, and I thought it Maybe could have been would, cool to play around that's, with. That's it, it, yeah, it would have been cool. I, I think I was thinking about that, and maybe I thought that she was thinking about that, but it was just maybe I just didn't see the lines that she was drawing. To. I mean, that's that's. Possible. I don't know. I don't think there's really a connection specifically necessarily, but um, yeah. I mean, it's that is interesting too because she she knows a lot about Neanderthals, right? So, you know, I think the other thing that was kind of funny to me, and, and I think you wanted to talk about this, too, is in regards to the aliens that they there's this, um, as you put it, like biological determinism of like, oh, they're a predator species. So they act like this and they're a prey species. So they act like that. And that's the relationship to each other when like humans are a predator species and we don't act like them (laughs) like like we have a lot of different kinds of cultures that look very different and you know you know this idea that like oh there's one culture because and it's their culture looks this way because they're predators is just you know i feel like it's this common kind of lazy trope in science fiction that i'm always disappointed by it's really hard to come up with a full and like fully developed culture, right? It, like, well, much less like multiple is. cultures, which is really yeah. what you need to do yeah. when designing a planet. Totally. And, you know, and so like authors go with a lot of different shorthands. This is a 
a shorthand that other authors have used many times. And right. it's just a little bit like, you know, doing this particular kind of story, uh, an, a story that's focused on like the structure of, a, of an alien culture, or I mean, at least part of it is, and we wish more of it was, um, it's very hard. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and like few authors have done it, um, well, I think, um, mm-hmm. I, I have one question I was going to ask you. Yeah. All right. Tell me your methodology for designing an alien culture in three bullet points. Sure. I mean, like when I like to do this kind of thing, I mean, I think that I like to. There's a couple of like main points. One is that like, you know, biology shouldn't determine culture although obviously it should play into that and like that's part of the like fun of it so you know for instance when i when i when i've designed races for fantasy games in the past that that i've been running it's usually there's some element of you know like biology kind of determines like the kinds of emotions they have and the kinds of ways they feel about things but not necessarily like that's not all they can do um you know, I, I really like taking like personally, and this is something that I thought uh, uh, Doria Russell did kind of like not all that well, which is I like to take like things like interesting animals on Earth and particularly like not just like individual animals, but rather like interesting like societies of animals, the way that they interact with each other, their behaviors and why those behaviors evolved in particular, like what we know about the like kind of like environment that like created those behaviors Um, and then try to think what would it ha- what would it look like if they could talk like what would it ha- look like if they actually like could reason and interact with each other and that sort of things and one of the first questions i ask is like what myths would they create like like what myths do blue whales have what myths do you know i think particularly like what myths do dolphins have like dolphins who are like predators but not peak predators who are like themselves preyed upon right and who like live in these like pods where they have names for each other and are obviously like very intelligent um like what what, you know what do they think about like orca (laughs) you know what what do they think about sharks what do they think about you know like submarines and boats what are what are their myths what are the stories that they tell themselves about those things so that's where i really like to start and then um i think the other thing and this is key for me generally in world building is not treating like everyone is the same like alien characters should be different from each other two aliens of the same species should be different from each other they should have their own personalities two cultures from the same species should have their own cultural things right like how many cultures are there on earth and have there been on earth billions that that's cool we should need more of that please i like it i agree what about yourself? Sounds great. What tell me a, an alien? I mean, my favorite thing to think about when I think about like designing aliens for a sci-fi story is to think about like like you said, animals on Earth because xenobiology is biology, right? Like, they're like the principles of evolution don't change. Yeah, like cephalopods are aliens. Absolutely, they are super different from us. They are really, really different from us, but they are you know quite intelligent like you know you we can talk we can have a long discussion about intelligence but like they are capable of doing stuff that is pretty complicated that like relatively few organisms are capable of doing 
but that fits into the category of stuff that we usually in a common sense way refer to as intelligent um you know they they have behaviors that we do not understand they have all kinds of behavior like you know uh cuttlefish there's a type of cuttlefish that has been observed also like there's relatively little observation of the close observation of them that's been done over a long period of time. you compare for example the level of intelligence that cephalopods have to the level of intelligence that you know say primates have and then compare the levels of close observation that humans have undertaken of those two types of animals and it's like there's no comparison cephalopods in the few instances where people have spent a lot of time observing the same cephalopod they do all kinds of weird stuff like there's a particular type of cuttlefish that I think is from the Caribbean somewhere that sometimes individuals of this species of cuttlefish have been known to stop what they're doing, point in a certain direction, and then their skin starts to change into patterns that it doesn't normally do. And they just do that for a while. Right. Like what? What are they doing? Right. Like why? Like I mean, are it's they like totally unclear. Mecca and praying? Are they? You know, I don't like, know. Are like, they like they're not sleeping? Danger? Right? Are they talking to each other? Right. So 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 it's like they're not looking for food. They're not trying to have sex, and they're not sleeping. Right. We don't know what they're doing. You know. Well, and this is, this is the point of like you know like like this is really the point for me of like what myths would they have? Like that's another way of asking sort of like what. Um, you know, like, like, look at human behavior and like how much of human behavior is not like, you know, fucking eating or sleeping like most of it, a lot of it, at least a lot yeah, of the interesting stuff. Ask. Yeah, fair, fair <laughs> enough. Tyler Cohen would disagree, but fuck him. Um, <laughs> uh, but like the yeah, this this episode is going to get an explicit mark just for the number of people I've said, fuck you two, huh? um but uh you know it's like what the assumption that like you know all of animal behavior fits into like those kind of simplistic survival categories or or even you know frankly and this is the thing i think that a lot of like anthropologists over time have gotten wrong especially you know kind of like anthropologists before a certain era like to assume that all sort of like, you know, quotes, primitive human culture fits into those categories and that like, you know, when we look at Neanderthal culture, we should somehow think like, well, oh, how did this help them survive? Or when we find like ancient human remains like, oh, what were they doing? It's like, no, like there is more to survival in human life and there is more to survival in animal life. Like <laughs> you know, there's more to survival in everything. And so I've never, you know, and part of this comes down to like I've never been a big fan of the like kind of selfish gene way of looking at things be because of this, because I think it simplifies out the rest of this like really interesting kind of humanistic thing. You know, do do elephants have souls? Do, <laughs> you know, do cats have fun? Like those are questions worth thinking about beyond just like, well, even if they do, it's, you know, it helps them survive because of X. And then a lot of that feels like just so stories. So I don't like it when aliens in fiction do that either, because it seems to be making the same kind of like mistake. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it was long. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So should we? Yeah, I wanted to. um finish this out by like recommending a few like related books related either to stuff that we've talked about. Um, maybe if you like the idea of this book, but don't want to read it cause we shit on it, like another book to read, like that kind of thing. I, I, I actually kind of want to start with one in particular. Do it. Um, which is 
Um, if you like the idea of like a missionary on a mission to like other planets, um, I would highly suggest the book of strange new things by Michelle Faber. It's a book that Matt gave to me actually back in the day. And it's like one of my favorites. Um, and I think that that book does, I think it handles a lot of things better than this book. And I kept wanting this book to be that book while I was reading it. And that's not fair to the sparrow to, for me to want that. But like that, that is, that was my reaction while reading it. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, I also love that book. Um, the book of strange new things. And I also thought about it a lot while reading the sparrow. It's worth mentioning that the book of strange new things was written after the sparrow. Yes. And in all likelihood, I, although I don't know for a fact, it was influenced by the sparrow. Um, that said, I mean, I think it's better. I think it's a better in basically every way. Mm -hmm. I tried to not think about it too much while reading the sparrow. I think that, I think that my views of the sparrow are mostly unrelated to comparing it directly to that book. Yeah. Um, uh, but I would say that I, I, you know, now that we've started to compare it directly to that book, I think that book of strange new things is, it's, it's not exactly the same. There, there's, some, no, there's, you know, a, I mean, important differences, it's but, very different. And I think, I think there's also like the one element that it doesn't have that it really doesn't have is this sense of like, you know, kind of like the non-traditional family and this like group of people working together towards like a, well, I guess not a common goal cause they don't actually have a goal, but like the groupness of the sparrow is absent. It's really about like the priest and just the priest. And he's like very othered from the rest of the crew even. Yeah. But that's it. It's certainly deals with similar themes and, uh, it's a very good book. It's, I like it a lot more. Yep. Same. Um, the other thing that I, you know, <clears throat> I think worth plugging is, uh, Charles Mann's 1491, which is a nonfiction book about, the Americas before Columbus. And this is a book that both you and I have read, and we've also read other books kind of about these topics. But I think that that in particular is a very good kind of like introductory level text to some of the stuff we were talking about, about like, what were the Americas actually like? What was the contact between Americas and Europe actually like? What were the motivations behind that contact? Like, why did we we have it? Um, and what, what actually happened, um, that, that to me is like the, the best kind of like introductory book into those sorts of questions. And 1493 as well, the sequel, another nonfiction book. Yeah. About... Although that's more about like the, like worldwide trade and less about like what happened in the Americas to the native Americans. Oh, certainly, certainly it's, it's, um, it's, it's a about, great book, like, but I don't think it's actually the... about the same stuff that this book is about. Oh, not at all. No, no, no. But I think I would recommend it too, because to me, it's, I, I think about that a lot when I think about, um, like depending on what perspective you want to have, when you think about, uh, interacting like cultures from different planets interacting with each other, if you want to have like some, some people really like the fiction that takes a really long view, your foundation, your, the foundation series, you know, or your, um, you know, um, N.K. Jemison's books have a long time scale, uh, some of them. And, you know, th this book is, is kind of like the, it's, it's a wonderful nonfiction book on like 
the interaction of cultures over a long time scale. 1491. 1491 and 1493 1493 i mean you know it's like what were the like what were some things that couldn't have happened if this uh columbian exchange if the if the interaction of if the you know constant high frequency interaction between europeans and people of the new world never happened what were some other things that wouldn't have happened what were some things that were tied to that what were the economic structures in different parts of the world that were affected in different ways by the events what were the crops that came from the new world to the rest of the world and what impact did they have i i I think those high level questions it's a different it's totally different you know in terms of what it's talking about my only point is that like this book is about the effect of contact on like the contacted not on the contactors and like 1491 is about the effect of contact on the americas and 1493 is about the effect of contact on the rest of the world and both of those are hugely interesting things it's just like yeah one one relates more explicitly to what we've been talking about than the other does is, is my only point and i want to make that clear for our listeners like kind of what the separation Mm -hmm. there is well i guess that's it for us for today right yep so that's been spectology today um thank you as always to wj on soundcloud for our music and noah bradley at noahbradley.com for our art um you can find spectology at www.spectology.com or search spectology on itunes google play or pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts um you know we'd love to hear from you if you if you comment on itunes that would be a big help for us um you know or share or tweet about it um that's that's how people find us as you guys sharing it um if you want to talk to us at all our gmail is spectologypod at gmail.com and our twitter account is at spectologypod on twitter um we have a facebook too and some other things i don't really use those so those are the main ways to to talk to us um you can also submit any of our episodes to uh printsf.reddit.com i I, you know used to be a mod there and i'm still friendly and usually hang out we'll see if you do if you want to like talk about this more with a group of people um yeah and so i think i think that's it for us today we'll we'll sign off here and we'll see you next week to talk about arthur c Clarke's the star see you later bye guys